0: It may be that Parisians in 100 years from now will take the family out for a spin round the development called La Défense, much as they still stroll down the boule miche, but it's doubtful. No one will drop in for a drink here or take the dog for a walk. Before La Défense was built, Tati built his own version to make the film Playtime. It was an immense effort. Real glass, real streets, real shops, real traffic, enough electricity to light a small town, and skyscrapers on rollers. It broke the bank, but it made his point. All the little civic and civil ceremonies that Tati delights in are out of place here. The gossiping street sweeper, the flower seller, the drinking companions, the nosy neighbors. It could be any city in the world. No one is going to put up a maypole here.
1: Most of the people speak about being against the modern architecture. This is wrong. Why? Because what I'm trying to do is to defend the people. To defend the people. defend Defend the personality. Why do they change? Because the architect decide that they have to live in other lines. You see, at the beginning of uh, Playtime, you see quite a few people in the new airport. They're lost. They even don't know where to go. So at the beginning of Playtime, I did ask the actors to follow the idea of the architect And, I mean, they they were never making any turn because all, as you've seen, all the the, the buildings are done with just line.
0: In playtime, Tati turns his airport set into a sort of cold hospital. And at the same time, Hulot himself begins to drift towards the edge of the films. Tati develops a theory of defending the people, of democratizing the comedy. If you look at them long enough, goes the theory, everyone is funny. What's more, close-ups aren't democratic, and so the human comedy will unroll in long, wide-angle shots. You see,
1: uh, a girl have a uh, dossier or papers. She comes like this and she turns. She follows the idea. Everything that we have in life today, it's made by the first engineer, the one who decide, decide that you have to be, go there and to push that path. They don't ask you if you want. They don't ask you in what kind of path you would like to live. They don't ask you what is your participation. So the people are lost. More it goes, more the people start to be a little bit human. In my picture, Uh, the nightclub is not ready, meaning that the people are obliged to uh, help each other. And it changed that big modern nightclub to a little cafe.
2: Gentlemen, welcome to YBR Presents Tour de Tati, a look at the life and works of Jacques Tati. Today we will watch as our hero will succumb delightfully but tragically down the rabbit hole of ambition. Following the success of Mon Oncle, Tati had come to represent French cinema and its ability to serve as a gateway to the world for the wonders France could offer the filmmaking world both artistically and commercially. Tati himself, though, had tired again of the beloved Hulot and reasoned that if he must bring him back, he would push him further into the background in favor of a grander commentary that had its seed in Mononcle, an examination of the ever-changing world with a scrutinous and hilarious eye. The result is an experience that one lives and not merely watches. A masterpiece in humor and observation and trademark Tati humor, the film sadly would prove to be the decline of our hero, and not even the grand scope of 70mm or innovative set design could entice an ever-changing world to the box office for this film. Today, Tour Tati to will break down the 1967 film Playtime, uh, a film that would Changed tati's life forever and we're gonna find out that it might still be changing the world to this day what does it still have to offer us well we're gonna find out my name is zach eastman and with me as always is this is sterling cook hello sterling welcome back hey happy we're... to be here yeah we're back in tativille um and uh, as you can see you're in a new surrounding you've you've uh, you've left the, the confines of the, the neighborhood you once lived in in post-war France and now you're entering the big cities I'm no longer in a small village nor am I in a suburb I'm right <laughs> right in the heart yes the of only the difference city. between the regular Tativille and this Tativille is I don't have big glass windows that you can see in from the street <laughs> that be.
3: No, but you have like a facade marble, which is very reminiscent of uh, what we'll learn how they replicated steel.
2: Yeah, exactly. And what's more, I'm veneer
3: wood. I'm, you know,
2: I'm fairly sure that this wall isn't great either, and could be about the the strength of balsa wood. <laughs> um, but um, we we are not alone today. We have a guest with us. We have, we had, it, Tativille, you see, can't be just relegated to two simpletons running around it. We need a third person to create an entire city. And since I didn't have enough time to make a bunch of cardboard cutouts to stick in the background, uh, I instead in, uh, decided we need to bring uh, a prior Ballyhoo guest and podcaster for Real Nerds podcast. Uh, he is a filmmaker. He is a sound engineer, sound designer, and all around appreciator of world cinema and today we are going to ask him to lend his takes on tati so ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the show henry jarvis did we decide against the cutouts because i i
4: got my eight cutouts that are surrounding me to fill out the tati city But uh, if we're not going to do that, then I feel well. Like a fool. Um,
2: you know that that's your fault for getting ahead of yourself, kind of like Tati did in certain cases.
3: <laughs> but Henry, uh, I think the only concern is that we haven't gotten levels on the cutouts yet, so I don't know if they're gonna. I don't. I don't know where they're gonna sit. Okay, let's go for uh, cutout number one. Cut yeah. <laughs> you got
4: all right. Cool. Go cutout number two. Ah, they, they're leaving now. They do not We have a Talk, union. We, we demand
2: lunch. Now. Oh no! What do they eat? <laughs> um. Other cardboard cutouts.
3: That's dark.
4: They're cannibals. Okay. <laughs> Everyone knows that cardboard cutouts are cannibals. That's that's the natural order of things. Cannibal
3: cutout is the name of my band. Actually,
4: cannibal,
2: cannibal cutout.
3: Uh, Henry, this is uh, this is exciting to be recording with you. I, I feel as though I'm uh Hulo and uh, and you're the actor I want to work with, and, and so I'm going to sit back and let oh. you shine. Well, that's lovely.
2: <laughs> And I feel like Jack Lagrange, uh not fully appreciated in the grand scheme of the Tati story. Always tired. Yes. <laughs> Always tired. Um so uh Henry, why don't we ask you a little bit? Because we we've been more than upfront about our Tati journey. I mean, it's 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 proclaimed prominence in the first three episodes. So let's talk about your experience with Tati. What is what is your knowledge of him? How did you get into him? Did you discover him for the like? Did you start off with him for this show or did you see his stuff before?
4: Uh, I mean, I got into Tati in film school. It was uh, in one of my film history classes. We watched uh, Mon Uncle. And uh, that was my introduction to him, was watching uh, that film. And I, I was really into that film, and I wanted to watch more, so since then I I watched Playtime because that was just the one that I always considered to be the definitive uh, Tati film, so I, I, set, I just tried to find that one, so I watched that one, and Playtime is still, today, my favorite of his. I've seen around half of his filmography, uh, mm. but I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert in... I mean, it's funny, as a, someone who considers myself to be pretty knowledgeable in film history... French cinema is a big blind spot for me, which is n- not usually the case if you're into <laughs> into film history. It's kind of
2: literally um, what what Ryan will stereotype you as on real nerds.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really actually kind of ironic that like French cinema is the one thing I don't really know anything about. And so <laughs> yeah, but, it, uh, so it, I'm, I'm it, just not as well informed on French cinema as I would have liked to be. But it's I'm excited to see you guys bring me through this journey of Tati mm-hmm. uh, and to see what I. Uh, could learn from this. I'm very excited. Yeah,
2: well, and we're we're happy to lend what we have. Um, and Sterling, uh, there's a little house cleaning that needs to happen here. So when I was starting off this series, I was going to rely heavily on the Criterion and whatever I could find around the internet. And I've used sources like Variety or other essays through Criterion or the box
3: set. Yeah, your research uh, has been. Just inexhaustive, given the resources that you had, but but I did hear that there was an update.
2: There is an update. We are going to be starting to use uh, a book. Um, which uh, do you know what a book is? Um,
3: it's like a movie that it's like a script. It's like a script. a script of a movie. It's
2: like a script, yes, but occasionally it's not a narrative. Sometimes it's nonfiction.
3: So it's like a
4: documentary. Are they like stone tablets?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, actually, well, it's a combination of a stone tablet and what it used to do. And a film script, which is to entertain, uh, um, but I can't keep up
4: with all this modern technology.
2: Yeah, instead of scene direction, you basically have um, uh, you 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 have a little bit more broader direction that opens up your imagination a little bit more. Huh, is this a new thing? Like, is this what the kids are doing? Or? I, I just started last week on TikTok. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, it's constructed by Paper, which is a thing that seems like it's very very rare. I don't think I have that app. Let me, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, go, Siri, find Paper. Uh, Yes, no, Uh, there is a book out there uh, by David Bellows on Jacques Tati that I neglected to find in preparation, which is weird because in The Magnificent Tati, he is literally interviewed, but he's not labeled as author of a Tati book. He's labeled as a professor, (laughs) so like it's very broad, Um, but uh, his book not only fills the gaps in for some production stuff on Playtime, but it's pretty... uh, damn exhausting and other areas as well so we might end up going back to jour de fête uh monsieur Hulot's holiday and mon oncle um with the knowledge contained in this book and try to answer some questions that we may not have been able to answer the first time
3: that would be a cool supplement just like especially with jour de fête because that was the one that, uh, that
2: that's the one where i was just like i don't know anything about and i this. was pulling
3: heavily from like j store like i I'd use someone's educational email to get an account so that I could yeah. try to find some articles there. And uh, and I would
2: look on IMDb and then back reference to be like, is there an article that supports this? Is there something from Variety? That yeah, you were
3: looking at like microfilms.
2: Well, sort of, yeah. But like we've had the microfilm discussion before occasionally that. You know, microfilm actually is a new technology that came out last week through Twitter. Oh. Um, so so it's problematic. <laughs> yes, it is problematic. Yes, it's canceled. I didn't know at the time microfilm that I said that. Microfilm is canceled. <laughs> um, but uh, no, so we are talking about a movie that in a lot of ways is responsible for our hero's downfall. <laughs> like I just.
3: To, to an extent that I didn't realize Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the magnificent Tati documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh it doesn't brush over it, but it doesn't quite explain the depth to to the, the amount of his own personal estate that he leveraged to get into that trouble. Uh, you know, you assume his career took a hit, but uh He lost his family home. Like, yeah, he really put everything on the table for this—the family
2: fortune that was supposed to be divided amongst him and his sister. I can't imagine all put into this
3: that uh, Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. Like, (laughs) after that,
2: I don't want to think. This is the problem. Like, we could go into a funny scenario, but we're depressed because we love this guy and we want him to succeed.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's it's like three-day-old bread and like (laughs) discount discounted uh, (laughs) camber.
2: I feel like it's like watching your friend go mad and you know you can't stop them because they ultimately need to go get help. <laughs> like yeah. you're like I can imagine being Jack Lagrange or Henry Marquette standing there watching him do this.
3: Was it Lagrange who was suggesting that you know the pragmatist who's like, oh, build an actual building and then you can lease it when you're done? Yes. And
2: that is one part of like so hulo tati was not business like business oriented in the same way that seemingly lagrange was or any of his other uh, collaborators but he had an opportunity to potentially make money off of this even if the film flopped right and it had to do with getting property that they could then sell back
3: i mean he Ran from a successful family business to become a filmmaker. Yeah. Know, to become a mime, actually. Yeah. So.
2: I guess it's sort of in it, line with his decision making. And empire. his themes. hmm Yeah. Uh,
3: you know, the businessman. It's like during the, the dance sequence that we'll get to towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, when the guy observes, they're looking at strangers dancing and the guy says, oh, that man's in international finance. Mm-hmm. And then another man enters frame, and he's dancing, and so he's pushing a series of buttons, yeah, and moving like an abacus. And he goes, "Oh, my mistake. It's that man." Mm-hmm. You know, like like Tati is is always poking fun at, at the establishment. Yeah, uh,
2: and yet the establishment would sort of bite back. Like,
3: uh, the emperor always fights. You know,
2: it's it's <laughs> the emperor always strikes, strikes back. back. Yeah, and then the Jedi returns, and then the Force awakens, and the... <laughs> Um now uh, Henry. To to bring you into this with now that we're talking about Tati's, wow,
3: hear we're gonna that? hold for ambulance. Yeah, that's actually uh sound that Zach is putting in in post. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, any, to create some suspense. Any interference you hear in this podcast, uh, we record this actually MOS, and then Zach puts all the Wh- sound in. What you don't know is that it's there's all a- ADR at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> the entire. Henry Henry is a is is not really Henry he's just some random voice that I uh found on backstage.com com.
4: And- henry died years ago <laughs>
3: it's just all a facade <laughs> well, it's a it's a preset that we were able to create
2: yes exactly yeah. henry is a preset and you well you're just a puppet that I constructed out of felt.
3: I thought I just had migraines. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs>
2: yeah, you're, still, you're full of cotton. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's why when it gets hot, you feel weird because you're contracting a lot of heat in you. <laughs> um, but no, um, Henry, how familiar were you with what this did to Tati? Uh, I actually
4: wasn't that familiar at all. The actual backstory of the production side of the film, I was very unfamiliar with. After, uh, well, before I watched the film this time... Uh, i watched a lot of the social features on the criterion that included a lot of information about like basically his life being ruined because of this movie oh <laughs> um, it was a really it was really one of those things because it's i don't know it's it's always shocking whenever i hear about like this like monumental very important very famous film and how it destroyed the life of the creator well it's, it's... Uh, and so it was all very it's all very new information to me and i thought it was very interesting
2: what, what we what's funny is is that like here let's put it in a from a before we jump into the production information, let's talk about this idea. Uh, Pauline Kale talked about the idea of the auteur, like making the one film that drives them through the egomaniacal cycle. Um, and I- I'm curious how we feel about this auteur ambition, which I guess for my own purposes, I'll I'll bring up this caveat that I don't fully believe the auteur theory exists. Um, or is applicable necessarily because I feel like it's denigrating to the larger crew at hand to a degree. But in terms of direct vision, I understand auteurism and how it operates on a functional basis.
3: I would only slightly push back in that um, when you hear about Tati's directing style, he's mm-hmm. micromanaging every department. He's micromanaging every decision an actor makes. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so he- this movie of maybe any a cinema, like this movie is unbelievably Mm single-minded in everything that you're seeing on screen and everything that is happening behind the scenes. You know, I don't know if you saw that supplement where they're talking about him, like being very involved in the wardrobe and (laughs) uh, even like the G and E work. Like
2: was that what the script girl, uh, the script girl talking about that?
3: Um, I, 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 done such a deep dive that I've forgotten which sources to cite.
2: Sylvette uh, Baudreau um, is interviewed on some kind of program that they did years prior.
3: This might have been like the Philip Kemp commentary actually. Oh
2: yeah, the Philip Kemp commentary has this too. Yes, he is. He he describes the detail perfectly. Baudreau had this to say though is like this she talked about she kind of got suddenly pushed in and then she talked about the fabric tests for the American ladies wardrobe and she, and she starts talking about how he doesn't want red. And we'll get into that color scheme in a second. But he was, like, focused on, like, even the fabric on this group of actors that that is prominent. But it gives you an example of just, like, he's there for fabric tests.
3: Yeah, he's, um, w- which ties in, I guess. I understand what you're saying about auteur theory. Mm-hmm. Maybe being overstated, overattributed. I think there are very few actual auteurs among directors.
2: Tati would be definitely one of them if we're going to...
3: F- Certainly by the time we get to, to this.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because prior with Jour de Fete up to Mononcle, we're seeing a lot of collaboration. But by Mononcle, as we were kind of talking about, we also saw him becoming a lot more focused on what he wanted. And he had already learned what he needed to learn in the two films prior. Which is why he doesn't.
3: Films. I cut you off. but no, yeah. I, I was going to say that's why he doesn't really repeat himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why he on screen becomes more and more removed Uh, there's there's that interview too where he's talking about they're asking why he doesn't act in other people's movies and it's because he is unwilling to relinquish control of his physicality Yeah, he says if he were doing a scene where he's speaking to someone uh, across a table for example and a director asked him to do something that he felt was unnatural to the situation and the character he would be unable or, or at least miserable to make that adjustment
2: Yeah. Which, you know, it's for all the times that I feel like Tati is a very collaborative person. It's kind of like this story I heard about Gene Kelly once where like they wanted him to do a voiceover take one more time for the Marx Brothers documentary. And instead of doing the takeover, it already, it already been like what, five or six o'clock. And Gene Kelly just said, shake my hand and apologize. (laughs) And, uh, the the story was confirmed by Jean's widow, going like, "Yeah, that's Jean. He's happy to do whatever you ask him to do, but when he's done, he's done." <laughs> like, and that that kind of mentality seems to seep into Tati a little bit. Technically, like he's it's not that he's like I don't think you can be fully like egocentric if you're having to manage everything you're managing in this Tativille. Um, but there is definitely the control that he probably didn't have prior. Um, but how do you fi- how do we all feel about these kind of projects? because they predominate our film culture? We're
3: talking about like a Cleopatra or a heaven's Gate or, yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think
2: of more examples. Spiraling. I mean Orson Welles would definitely fall into this with maybe uh, maybe some of his ambitions that never fully got finished. Um, you could say. Magnificent Ambersons, except we've talked about how that's that's RKO actively sabotaging something. Uh, I think Chimino's Heaven's Gate is probably the go-to because,
3: um, like that, you know, this bankrupts a studio.
2: Yeah, but like as a as a film goer, what do you find that the story behind the ambition ends up being more fascinating than the film itself, or do you end up finding like? Uh, It's hard
3: for me to separate similar to like a problematic filmmaker, like Stardust Memories. Like I have a hard time watching
2: it now. Yeah.
3: Um, Even though it's one of my favorite films of all time.
2: I feel like that about radio days. Yeah. We're talking about the same
3: filmmaker. Yeah. I have a hard time uh, making that distinction once I know the story. Um, Because the more I read about this movie and the times that I've watched it for this podcast, uh, I think I watched it three or four times uh, because it really is a movie that demands and also gets better. Yes. The more you let it breathe, the more you sit in it. Um, but by the time we get to the, the carousel finale, um, I was almost in tears on this fourth watch, just yeah. being so impressed by what he pulled off, knowing what was at stake, knowing what's gonna happen. Yeah, um,
2: it. I will. I will say that I, I've seen the film three times now, and by the third viewing, I felt. I don't. I wasn't near tears. My reaction was. It was something else. It was like the equivalent of. Realizing the idea at last and instead of feeling overwhelmed with joy it almost felt like I tapped into something that I realized has been missing from my l- filmmaking sphere for so long um, Henry how do you feel about that and in consequence how does it make you feel about the film
4: uh, I mean it's uh I feel very similarly. It's it's one of those films where by the end, and I I do think it's definitely one of those films where the more you watch it, or the every every time you I've watched this film, I appreciate it more because of how meticulous, like not for lack of a better word, almost like robotic in how he directs it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like there's so many moving parts that are all going so smoothly the entire time that it is such a feat for a filmmaker to do Like I'm going back to the auteur conversation I tend to lean more with Zack where I think the vast majority of the time that the word auteur is used, it's used as a way to excuse someone's behavior uh, usually the director, but I think this is one of those cases where he really does have his hands in everything and it's so finely crafted and so finely sculpted that it's hard to not appreciate how much effort is put into this film. It's one of those, it's one of those miracle films where it's like, you can't really ask for this to happen again, but it does happen every, every once in a while. One of these films pops up. That's just so, it's so complicated and there's so much passion in it and there's so many moving parts to it and everything just works just Mm -hmm. so well. Yeah. Uh, like, there's, it's hard to find many faults with the film, and any faults I can find with the film, I kind of have to be like, well, everything else is so much better that it's okay. Like, I'm kind of okay with any th- problems I might have because of how much effort is put into it to begin with.
2: I agree with you, Henry, Henry, and I think that there's... But there was a part of me that tried to separate myself out from my admiration for the ambition... And the scale that he pulls off and the miracle he pers- pulls off versus the movie we get, um, mm-hmm. which I think this is a good time to talk about what that ambition was. So,
3: can I interject? Yeah, briefly Just yeah. to um, just to piggyback off what Henry's saying. Yeah. Um. Someone had once described to me the problem. It was a dancer, and they were saying the problem with ballet, mm-hmm. or at least traditional ballet. Is that when it's going well, it looks like no effort at all, and it make it disconnects the audience with the material in that, like you, because you don't see the effort. If you don't understand it, it can be uh, a bit alienating. Yeah, and I, I kind of feel like that's Henry what you were saying about the the film yeah. itself.
2: Well, that's very true. Um, the, here's the question: Are you able to watch it without the? specter of Tativille's rise and fall and appreciate it that way.
3: It's hard to say at this t- point in time, right? Because I, I definitely did not appreciate this movie when I was 14 or 15 or whatever. Right. right yeah. I remember I, I've told you the story about, you know, saying model and like, um, then being like, Oh, Tati, I should check out his work. And then I remember at some point after Netflix was invented and you could just get any DVD, um, like one of the first ones I went to was Playtime. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't, it just didn't hit for me at all. Like, yeah. um, it, it was one of those things that you, I like appreciated out of a, a sheer will mm-hmm. to fall in line with the... Um...
2: Intelligentsia. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
3: And and I knew that my dad had a soft spot for it too. And
2: You know, I, 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 I'm glad that I found Tati, thanks to you at this age in my life. I don't know. Even with the three that we've talked about, I don't know how I would have felt about it at 14 or 15. I don't know. I want to think that I would have loved, at the very least, Jure de fete and uh, Hula's Holiday. But Mononcle and Playtime are dealing with Pointed commentary now Mononcle is far more accessible it's so fucking accessible like this is a dream foreign language film or world cinema entry that an American uh, distributor would want because it's so easily accessible and it can hit every quadrant that a business plan is wanting you to hit. Playtime hits nobody's fucking quadrant, nobody's fucking uh, desire for a film, and yet this is the film Tati decides to make after winning the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, which would now be Best International Feature. <clears throat> and the another project that he had in development at the time was Le Illusionist, which um, we will talk about down the line because it did end up getting made, <laughs> um, but not by Tati um and with it comes a very complicated story about who has the right to do other people's art
3: it's interesting as well that um the illusionist is a is written around this time as mm-hmm. like he's developing it around this time uh and and knowing a bit of the story now the fact that that's a father daughter film yeah the relationship there he's he's kind of in a lot of ways taking the themes from uh, and doing like Instead of a nephew and an uncle, it's it's examining a direct relationship of a parent and a daughter. Um, and yeah, I'll be very curious to talk about that film.
2: Which, in a sense, it's funny because that would bring him closer to a human connection, but instead, he actually pushes the human connection to a distance. So instead of trying to get even closer to humanity, he's actually pushing it back to a certain extent. But what's weird is that he Tati is not a cold filmmaker. This isn't. This is, this is a cold movie if you don't know what you're watching. I would argue it's not a cold movie because I know of the prior entries and understanding where his humor is coming from, that this is not cold and it's very warm and it has moments of warmness that I don't even know if everybody else would feel the same way that I feel about it. Consequently, you might find moments that I don't find warm, warm. Um, but... He decides to do this one, and Jacques Lagrange teams up with him on the script side. Now here comes the talk about TatiVille. TatiVille comes out of uh, a strange necessity. (laughs) Um, It's complicated because to uh, achieve what they want out of playtime, they would need full access to an entire city block, essentially.
3: And we had just talked about that off uh, off mic when we were getting levels done and everything. Yeah. But that question of, you know, the budget's I think two to four million projected. They end up spending fifteen million euros, uh, it, or francs at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this huge story of you know like budgetary bloat. There's a lot of disasters, things that happen where like somebody forgot to file the insurance paper. So when the whole set is destroyed in that storm. Uh, they have to start over and they can't claim any of it. So like the budget Mm -hmm. goes up from there. And then uh, shooting, it ends up expanding to, I think it was like two years,
2: right? Roughly around two years. It's, um, It's stated here in the notes that it was from the, one second, the set was not completely constructed until 1965, at which point Tati had begun mortgaging out what he could and securing loans and investments where possible. Um, and after all of the new advances that he would get from credit Lionals, he began shooting again in November and carried on sporadically until October 1966. So roughly a full 365 days of active filming, but yes, drawn out it's technically over a year. And so like, this is nuts.
3: And it makes you think, uh, you know, at first you're, you're kind of scoffing the hubris of him building a city, um, yeah, And that story. And then you wonder if you really had to take over an entire city block and an airport for two years. Mm-hmm. Like I could, I can't even begin to imagine that budget. But, in-
2: the, but it's weird. We were just talking about how he had the opportunity to do a different version of that and make money. But his goal falls in line with something that always seems to prove to be a failure. Which is let's make a filmmaker copy of. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, for Tati, the desired effect of Tativille would be for an active working set that other filmmakers could use eventually, and he would create his own working studio through the company Spectrovision. Now, the the key thing with n- not just the ambition of how the audacity the audacity to build a set is that the money where it initially comes from doesn't last. And so he's continually taking loans out. Now you'd think that somebody who won an Oscar would have set himself up financially for things. And I found something through David Bellis's book that I thought needed to be said out loud because there's traces of the idea starting uh, for this film uh, with something called Jour de Fête olympia which was a stage show of sorts. And you, do you know a little bit more about that, Sterling?
3: Actually, not until you sent me that that resource, but yeah. I, I was fascinated. Yeah. So go ahead.
2: Yeah, it's it's very much his kind of version. He's going back to music hall uh, in a sense, but it's also a, a more active environment. And um, the this is what I got from... Uh, David Bellows' book, which is providing a seed for the uh, the concept of playtime. All the same, Jour de Fete Olympia expressed Tati's desire to include the audience in the show. Um, this participatory effort and to include himself in the audience. He had false Hulos planted around the auditorium whose role was to walk out seconds before it was Tati's turn to be on stage. Like some vague and popular descendant of Wagnerian aesthetic ambitions, his aim was to create total spectacle and that it was indistinguishable uh, uh, that was indistinguishably a village fair a film and a variety show.
3: Yeah, he's doing like a rocky horror picture show revival of his own early works yeah
2: it's it's very much um darren lim bowsman does this a lot now with his kind of like interactive experience stuff that he does it's kind of, i think he started like with like the the, the tennis experiment or something like that the tannis experiment something like that it's like a uh, it's i guess it's It's a virtually interactive story that you are literally walking through. Um, But um, alas, though, the traces also seem to uh, come at a time when he's wanting to push his boundaries further. He's not wanting to continue Hulo. But what's funny I found in the things that he was trying to be active in was actually providing foreign language redubbing and soundtracks for... The films of his heroes which doesn't really come to pass so all of these there's other things that he has going on whether that's also appearing maybe in another person's film or getting another film like *The illusionist off the ground they all don't come to the table
3: and in that he reminds me a bit too of like a peter jackson like a director that's hit a level of success and mm-hmm. then uh with peter jackson he's gotten really into like archivism and um and you wonder what might have happened had this film not yeah. been the disaster that it was in terms of him really dumping his resources into it. I had another thought, Henry, I wanted to ask you about this a bit because I know you're, yeah. um, but uh, it reminded me as well of the unsuccessful version of like Howard Hughes pouring a fortune into hell's angels. Ah, mm-hmm.
2: uh, yeah.
3: And yeah, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the parallels there. Um,
4: I mean, yeah, I mean the parallels are definitely there of just the director, pouring in all this money into this project, uh, in hopes of really any success. I mean, kind of almost as almost a Sisyphean task of I'm, I'm going to create this art one way or another.
3: Uh, but I, that's, I guess where th- I'm, what are you trying to get at? Uh, simply, simply that I'm just, uh, it, it kind of just hit me now while Zach was talking, but that, that idea of leveraging everything. Mm -hmm. To get something to take off. No, I definitely
4: see that there. I mean, it definitely is. I mean, that's another one of those miracle projects that I would consider is just despite the odds, putting anything you can (laughs) on the (laughs) table and just kind of do what you
2: can. And Hell's Angels is a really good example because Hell's Angels has everything working against it because he literally wraps filming at the dawn of sound and then has to go back in and redo it all over again. Mm -hmm. Um and hughes is fighting against wings which is a huge deal uh was the first best picture winner and basically sort of sums up what you could out of world war one even not discounting the fact that we'd get all squared on the western front down the line playtime though is such a unique experience that the that's both its benefit and its detriment um but in in regards to pouring everything you have into a film i think it's funny that we we can have an opinion on this but when it comes to the the reality of the world we're all independent filmmakers in this room in one way or another and haven't we all thrown way too much money than we could afford to throw in of our own personal money in the piggy bank into a short film that didn't quite come to what we wanted or that we did but nobody else cared about it <laughs> like it's it's i'm not like i'm not here to i'm not we're not here to like talk about horror stories but like we can understand the idea of how much we want to see the thing we want it, that's in our heads on a screen
3: i've definitely had some
4: i think <laughs> yes. as artists oh, sorry, i think as artists i think it's very easy to buy into the sunken cost fallacy even if it's not present mm-hmm. yet where it's like I'm I'm halfway here I'm making something that I know is important to me so at this point money isn't even yeah. an object. I think it's very easy for a director to really fall into
3: that headspace and so it's very understandable to have that play out.
2: Yeah. And and Sterling you were saying though. The- I was
3: just saying that that's why I understand how unwilling he was to take the advice of his collaborators and think of another business model to make money cuz fresh out of film school that was the last thing I was thinking of was Running a small business, say, and yeah. uh, I, you know, I had credit cards that reflected that for, for a long time. <laughs>
2: I had I had I had medical <laughs> medical debt from anxiety attacks that proved that effort.
5: Um,
2: but you know, you know, like that that, but that idea of pouring too much in, you know, it's it's easier for us to say it because we're not we can laugh at it because we're not dealing with millions and millions of dollars we're dealing at best with tens of thousands of dollars tati not only has to contend with the millions that he is taking out from anybody ranging from family members to the prime minister of france um but <laughs> he is also carrying the torch of being france's symbol for cinema at this time now this is a question that i have for both of you because Of the three of us, I am the least versed in how the new waves kick off apart from the American new wave. And I want to know, do you think that Tati became the international symbol for French cinema for only the mainstream and not necessarily like the, the, the grander scheme? Because this is... In the years just before, we're going to get Truffaut, Godard, other filmmakers from France that are going to really push things in a way that Tati is not explicitly demanding he do of, uh, demanding of himself, because he's practicing innovation from a different. Mental capacity, it seems,
3: and I think whereas uh, the filmmakers that you mentioned are going to come forward, they're you know they're born out of the Cahiers du Cinema. And, yes, exactly. And so they're watching, they're naming film noir, and then they're watching uh, that shift, and then they're making their movies. Eventually, graduating from journalists and, and academics, um, and they're going to then go on to influence kind of that golden age of like late seventies cinema, and like America is yes. going to try to appropriate a lot of the French New Wave, which is. Almost like when uh, you know some jungle cat eats a coffee bean and then shits it out, and it—it's a completely different. Like, That's
2: how I describe New York, New York. Any time I watch it, <laughs> um,
3: but I think uh, like Tati, you're not seeing that influence uh, in those filmmakers. They're not—they're not drawing the the lessons. I would think like Kubrick maybe is is watching Tati at least playtime mm-hmm. and internalizing a lot of that. Yeah, well, but
2: uh, 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 Kemp has a lot to say about connecting this film to two thousand and one, which I, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought to think about that until. But it has to do with the lack of structure necessarily.
3: And I assumed that I don't know why, but in my head the timeline was reversed, and two thousand and one came out right before this. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because of the distribution. I think it has delay. a lot
2: to do with the distribution. Yeah.
3: But uh, yeah, Henry, I'd love to know your thoughts on the on the. The origin, they the French cinema movie.
2: Yeah,
4: I mean, in a in a similar sense, I think uh, I think Tati, and I in an idealistic world, Tati is the face of cinema that France wanted, uh, and instead they got Godard. And I think
2: <laughs> in
4: any circumstance they would not want Godard, but I think they really wanted Tati to work out, and then this film proved that that was not going to work. Godard is the so, hero France think, like, deserves,
2: whole- but not the one it needs.
4: <laughs> yeah, like, I think, uh, like, I think, like, I think that this film, like, I feel like Godard would watch this film and fucking
2: hell. Oh, yeah, he would be like, throwing shit at his brain. Like,
4: like, I think, uh, I don't think, I think this, this film could very easily, could have been the wake-up call for a lot of those, uh, French New Wave types of, because, I mean, at, at its core, this film is like the best case scenario from an artistic standpoint of what a studio can be, of just pouring in money and making making this gigantic product and this gigantic machine, which is inherently against what my perspective at least of what French New Wave ended up being, which is so anti-studio mm-hmm. and kind of being so separated from that and being so small and so intimate. Whereas I think Tati succeeds in taking a studio environment and still bringing those intimacies there, just in the in the yeah the difference. And so I think, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think this is pro- this was probably like the transition yeah. film. Where it was like, we were putting all of our cards into Tati, and then it definitely didn't work out. And then, then from there, we have to kind of rebuild with the Godars and Agnes
3: Vardas and all of them. Yeah, I was so. just going to say, that the difference there is that uh, those intimacies are playing out on 16 different dimensional planes within playtime. hmm Yeah. Uh, you know, there's like a, yeah. a little drama going on anywhere. If it's someone doing a strip tease in the background or, uh, you know, an extra fumbling with like their mink that they've dropped or a couple breaking up at a table like in the midground, you know.
2: It is an interactive experience because it requires you to rewatch it to notice everybody's action in the frame. But uh,
3: but I do think that is a really good mm-hmm. point. It's weird because I, I think I saw this and I saw Weekend around the same time. Mm-hmm and uh and in my head i have those movies put together in a lot of ways playtime and and weekend um in sort of a weird dialogue
2: they, they're speaking to similar notions of how of, of human behavior I, I would i would presume
3: i'm trying to remember when weekend came out what, what year that was
2: mm.
3: we should have some music that plays when we're looking up something.
2: 1967 okay 1967 but but i think that it's funny that he has this idea though before Godard pushes his film out conceivably and tati is wanting to experiment more with the broader human behavior and pushing the slapstick origins into the background while at the same time not losing sight of that humor and why it is so successful. He's aware that if he gets, he's actively, he actively notes, if I get rid of Hulot, I'm isolating the American audience. And he is very concerned about the American audience as well, which plays into the fact that this isn't just a strictly French language film. This also has American dialogue, uh, written in the aftermath by Art Buchwald, uh, a noted columnist from New York who, uh, resided in France for, for a great long time. Um, and to achieve this flair, he tasked himself with finding Buchenwald. But Buchwald had gone back to the States, so Tati caught the next plane to Washington and took all the cans of playtime after it had already been filmed um, and, um, and spent a week of intense work just adjusting the English language gestures into the uh, then-updone film. Bookwald later said that he was surprised by the large credit line that he got in the titles. <laughs> because he was just he literally kind of just said like we kind of just uh i kind of was more like a copy editor than i was a a script writer for that film so
3: and that plays into his his style of screenwriting that is essentially he sits on a patio or a rooftop mm-hmm. and you know sips a beverage and smokes and listens like he's an eavesdropper, and he makes his movies and writes his scripts out of eavesdropping. So
2: it 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 would be like totally understandable if you were to tell me that the script for a Tati movie is like maybe a three or four page poem. <laughs> you know, like that's 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 how it feels watching this film, not necessarily watching the other ones. There's more construction set up. But Playtime is the one where, like, if you told me this was based on a poem that Jacques, Jacques Tati wrote off of the back of a napkin, I'd understand. Um, and now, but here's the here's the other additional part of this attention to detail is we also have, he does use some exterior sh- shots that are not just set in Tativille or the airport is a good example of that. Um, these act, Some of these actors, they're all non-professional actors. With the exceptions of some people that Tati wanted to work with, which Sterling, you looked a little bit further into. Uh,
3: yeah, we basically he's either casting American servicemen's wives, yes, uh, or you know British journalists. Was it just, from
2: NATO, like NATO stations? Or, yeah, that ah, oh, that shit. Uh,
3: but it, it's ranging the spectrum from that to him, uh, Leon Duyen, who plays the old man, uh, the old doorman. Yeah, the old at Dorman. the building. Uh, it's it's just a matter of like this is an actor who I think, as someone who observes mannerisms, I think nobody is better than this actor, and I basically have this part for him to play.
2: Yeah, and that's um, that. Uh, it makes perfect sense, especially with how his full scene unfolds when we talk when we get into the plot here. But we brought this up at the top. We should bring this up again though, just to clarify. So they're constructing. These they're constructing an entire city. Um, I wanted to read from Bellos' book uh, where he describes the majesty of this set. Are we ready for this? The set, though, was truly magnificent. It had its own power plant and its own approach road. It consisted of two main buildings in steel, and concrete one for exhibition hall airport lounge office building and restaurant scenes and one for the supermarket and drugstore scenes the main one was properly weatherproof with an industrial standard lighting heating and power the escalator that we see in the hotel and office sequences is a perfectly real operational one bought for the sole purpose of shooting those scenes Given that the scale of the set, many of the trick effects had to be similarly outsized. The aeroplane fin seen moving across the background picture window of the airport lounge is admittedly not a real-life caravel, but a model on a scale of one to three. A very large piece of plywood on wheels, kind of like the shark fin in Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. What is his obsession with fucking fins? <laughs> My man loves fins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, dude, he's just... He just, you know, why he kept because in French it means end. Ah, exactly. He wa- he's waiting for the end, but he never gets it. That metaphor makes no sense. Yeah, no, it's a, um, <laughs> it's a terrible. It, fuck. it does speak
3: to the foley. Yeah, that he does because the sound of that airplane. Uh, I just assumed, you know, also knowing the story, I was like, I guess he bought an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Hello.
2: <laughs> I'd like to buy one airplane. What's your name? Jacques Tati. You're kidding, right? I am known <laughs> no, by, I am known by many names <laughs> Hulot, Francois,
3: Jacques, the dancing man with the glass.
2: Uh. One day I will be Sylvian Chamey. <laughs> um, the though it wouldn't have surprised me either because it it's I got wrapped up in the grandeur of the film, so I kind of assumed that that's just they used a plane or they got access to a plane. Like you know, like John Carpenter, like literally they were able to deconstruct a whole like small, basic sized aircraft for the, and they they trucked it into town in Michigan where they were filming Escape from New York, laid it out, filmed it overnight, and then hauled it back and whatnot. It's not inconceivable to get an airplane, but. That just makes me smile that he's just like, no, cardboard will do. (laughs) Well, and he does that. I mean, I think he knows when he
3: needs to spend the money and -hmm. then he knows when you can have a 2D cardboard cutout, such as Henry is surrounded with right now. Right. Um, (laughs) Henry
2: is surrounded by cutouts that are about to eat him because they think he's a cardboard cutout. uh, (laughs)
3: Huh? (laughs) Huh? It's the uh, when you when you're looking at the stills. There's that Tativille documentary on the Criterion, yeah, uh, and they have the 2D cars that are shot in a 3D manner and just being moved around as well.
2: Yeah, Um, which they don't. You don't feel like do you? uh, Do any of you did any of you feel like the world was unnatural after learning that fact and then maybe rewatching the film again? It didn't take away the illusion for me, which is imperative for me.
3: No, having those those 2D elements, those cheats, The uh, he mentions that instead of constructing everything out of steel, which also reflects light and was going to be a problem for lighting, they just took high-quality photographs of steel panels, printed them on photo paper, and then plastered those mm-hmm. onto the facades uh, as well. Um, I and, can't tell. I, right. Yeah, I couldn't tell you when, when you're seeing that and when you're not or which car is real or which car isn't. Uh, some of the 2D people... But if anything, that adds to the effect of the, the world to me. It almost feels like a deliberate commentary. I don't know how you two feel about that.
2: I mean, Henry, take it away. How do you feel about being compared?
4: Oh, I, I completely agree. I think uh, from everything, you, like it's even knowing it, it's still hard to tell in a lot of spaces what is real, what is imitation. Uh, and I agree with the point that you could ar- definitely argue that it's part yeah, of the theme of the it, film. Uh, I completely agree with Sterling on that.
2: Sometimes, like... Well, and it's actually... We've had this experience before, Henry... When, when making a film with ADR... It was involved specifically... Um, where we had a decision to make in the ADR room... Where we chose... where Well, not we... You chose, rightfully so... To isolate a person's dialogue... Off to one side of the screen... Because then that way... It serviced the ADR... But it provided an artistic stroke... And in that sense necessity became its own part of the story would you agree like it sometimes necessity kind of bo- kind of helps enhance the story
4: uh yeah i mean i think at its core filmmaking as an art form is about problem solving mm-hmm. uh where where you really find director style and definition is in how do they solve a problem and how how do they work themselves out of this situation you have a vision and how do you, how do you get that vision to the screen in one way or the other? And it's how you do that. I think is the definition of that. And I think Tati really shows that.
2: Yeah, he does. He absolutely does. And the cardboard cutouts, by the way, like it's, it's, it's strange to have two films come up in the YBR sphere where cardboard cutouts are of significance, but Tati uses them correctly because they're in the background. And like more often than not, they're barely indistinguishable unless you're actively looking for them. But cardboard cutouts weren't not used for extras or filling in those backgrounds. There's literally in the horn blows at midnight from 1945, Raoul Walsh is shooting a special effects shot or, or either that or the special effects photographer at Warner brothers. They're shooting a shot where you are pushing in on a core, like a whole orchestra of angels up in heaven to get into Jack Benny playing the trumpet. And it's literally cardboard cutouts that are acting like puppets to pretend to be playing their various instruments, you can't. I'm I'm trying to describe it the best I can, but it kind of looks like a robot at Chuck E. Cheese.
3: Well, it's like a uh, like a Gilliam cartoon move- yes. movement as well. Yes, yes, yes. And I think it's no accident that Gilliam. Is the one that ends up doing the introduction to the films on the criterion or oh,
2: terry jones does the. oh yes, yes, yes but but gilliam's animation still does that because gilliam's animation is kind of acting in that stilted sense but he's using it you know he's become he becomes like avant-garde with it right like very very out there and esoteric but
3: you can imagine that he's seeing that kind of image as a kid and that's that's kind of what's causing him to it think about you. motion on those axes.
2: It startled you because there's also like, there, there's there's not just that, but there's also the way people act in this film. People, individual actors who are clearly not actors because they are doing things specifically according to Tati's vision to a point where it, it made me point to my girlfriend and go like, watch this precision. And then she was just like, nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. <laughs> And um, but on that front though, uh, I was going to say uh, Nolan doing
3: Dunkirk <gasps> takes that same two D. You know how how can we cheat these people on a beach and do this in camera? Yeah, and when it works, it works.
2: Yeah, it does. You you you. It's uh, the the I think one of the most famous cheats of all time is using two little people in the background in Casablanca to act as plane technicians because uh, the depth of field wouldn't work if they had a full-size plane. So Curtiz and the crew came up with that solution. And these are solutions that, in spite of finding the solutions that, um, that you do and having it work in your favor and you you know are, are an international hit, it seems like the more that Tati tried to consolidate, it wouldn't have mattered because everything had already spiraled so much out of control. And I think it's about this time where we talk about the film itself, unless there's any other point anybody wanted to bring up on the history of the film. Um, Because to me, I think we've kind of expounded upon how big an issue this is in Tati's career, that it behooves us to talk about the film that quote unquote ruined him. No, by all (laughs) means. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Let's roll
3: up our trousers and show (laughs) off our striped socks.
2: Absolutely. So let's go ahead and open up with the sky because of course Um, and just like Mon Club but probably even more so there's no plot to this movie Um, and of all the plotless films that have ever existed this may be the most plotless film I've ever seen in my life and it's beautiful because of it
3: one of the screenings that I was doing uh, in preparation for this podcast uh, some some friends of mine who are actually software engineers Mm mm-hmm but they kind of invited themselves over, and one of them was late. Walked in, watched, I think half the airport sequence, and then goes like, "Oh, is this is this one of those movies that's not about anything?" And I was like, "Well, more or less." Like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> sit down. You should have just told them like, "Yes, it's Seinfeld the movie. <laughs> they finally made it. Now sit your ass down and watch this." <laughs> um, th- but so. At this, it, it would behoove us instead of like necessarily trying to break this down by plot. Because even Mononcla had the benefit of a through line with the character. And we have through lines, but they're not. The through line in this film is Hulo is off to a job interview. And he d- may or may not have gotten that job. <laughs> it's kind of unimportant whether or not he gets or gets that job. Because I have a question by the time he meets a character almost straight up to the end. Um, but also it coincides with an American tourist going through Paris. And I guess the through line that also exists is the existence of Paris itself.
3: Yeah, I would say it's a it's a it's a city film. Like this the the book ending of the film in terms of it starts off cold, it ends in a celebration.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah
3: um like that's that's our through line yeah uh, it's like a weird scream of a spirit that that's haunting this this city
2: it's gonna be hard to talk about this film to my mind in terms of what happens in the film because it's it's almost like Jacques tati knew what he was doing in the sense that he wants you to experience it he doesn't want you to it almost feels like he doesn't want us to analyze it, Sterling.
3: I think that was the script girl saying that as well. That like yeah. What he's doing, um, he presents a tableau for you to get lost in, and he and he's delivering on a promise mm-hmm. to you that anywhere on screen you decide to look, there is some sort of short film happening that is for you and very fun, and you're welcome to discover it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, in terms of plot, he... He kind of brings in a similar theme to his other films about a, a younger woman and him almost maybe having a relationship that doesn't pan out. That does seem like a through line in, in all the movies we, we watch.
2: Ships passing in the night.
3: Yeah, it's very lost in translation in that regard.
2: Like, Yeah. Um,
3: but, but even
2: subtler. And I, it's just like what we were talking about with to or not with Hewlett's Hula, um, Holiday to an extent, but even subtler.
3: Yeah, even subtly, it's a one one hand touching a shoulder at one point and a gift at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time she gets on the bus, she's already kind of forgotten about him. Yeah, someone gave me a present, and she's delighted. Yep. Um, this
2: Paris trip was worth the five thousand dollars <laughs> that I spent in nineteen sixty seven money.
3: But yeah, uh, like summer summarily, the, the plot is: he goes in for a job interview. He he has a really difficult time connecting with the man he's supposed to speak to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even know if it's an interview. It's it's that vague. But he goes in with business, doesn't connect, wanders into a trade show. A bunch of American tourists show up. They go straight to the trade show. They're in this weird cosmopolitan city that is uh, presented as every city anywhere in what they call car age. Uh,
2: Which is disturbing as sin.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, yeah, this movie can hit you depending on when you watch it. Like, It, it can definitely hit you in a different way. But it uh, runs into these tourists. They are tourists. They go to a trade show. They see a bunch of uh, modern age gadgets that mm-hmm. would be like in the uh,
2: the homes in Mononclo. Can we stop for a second and talk about these inventions? Because they are pretty... They, if there's any like slapsticky, gimmicky thing in this movie it's these gags and i think it's the only real place he has to do something like this because we've talked about before how he will use uh, ridiculous traits of society or living to uh to a great effect and jour de Fête, it is obviously the postman olympics thing that we've got going on um, with all the different ways that a postman can deliver. Here it is like going through a Monsanto uh, display at Disneyland. <laughs> um, because we literally have, first of all, like Hen- Henry, do you have a favorite invention from this French Expo? <laughs> it's either the
4: silent doors or the sun or the glasses that you can put <laughs> slightly up.
3: Those are my two. So, oh, nope. mine is easily the column, the classic Greek column that's a waste bin. Oh, oh that's my, also great. I forgot about that one for
4: me, but that's also the a setup fantastic board one. is
2: amazing too because it does. I, unless you read French, you're not expecting it to go through that, but it literally says like throw, like so, like I. But I didn't think about it at first, and then suddenly I saw it pop up as a waste bin. I think it it's a joke that even worked better as an American audience than it does as maybe a French audience per se. Um, but my, I was rewatching it this morning before my girlfriend went to work and she looked over and she's like, Oh, I hate that toilet, that toilet. I'm like, it's a trash can. She's like, I mean, trash can, but could you imagine if it was a toilet too? <laughs> so, it was one of those things where I'm like, that would have been a great fucking joke, and I bet you he could have gotten away with it in 1967 in France.
3: I would own one of those if it was a toilet. If
2: you if you had a, had a Roman column toilet, mm-hmm. <laughs> I at that point I'd be decking it all out to look like the Senate chamber, <laughs> you know, the entire bath, the bathroom, the bathtub is is the center of the shen- Senate chamber. Um, but nobody's really everybody's bringing up these ones. Nobody's going to talk about the broom with headlights.
3: I just didn't, my, my wife just bought one and I didn't want to put her on blast. Oh. Uh, no, that's not true, but she showed up with like a standing vacuum cleaner that was so reminiscent of the room with headlights. Um,
2: it looks like a janitor's room
3: with two Mickey
2: Mouse or two googly eyes attached to it.
3: And you load it like it's an old musket, like you drop the batteries in and then you have to load them with a nine foot spring.
2: That, that spring going down in there like... I'm trying to think of any invention in the sixties that would have had a spring load that long for a battery.
3: And the woman says the the American tourist says, like, oh, I should get one for my servant.
2: Yeah, the, oh yeah, one for my maid yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Oh my God. That that by the way, the the ADR does wonders for exemplifying the blandest americans thing ever like come on ladies you gotta come inside and they even have american things in here come on (laughs) it sounds like her teeth are sticking out way too far for her own fucking good (laughs) um but yes that and the slant the silent door slam i love that oh my god and the setup for the gag for people is like There are so many fake hulos in this film, and we have a sort of fake hulo kind of rummaging through this expo, this expo um, uh, display of a silent slamming door. So, like, you can slam the door, but it's silent. Um, And and anytime they take
3: material that Mm -hmm. is constructed in the door and slam that, it's silent. Yeah. Um, But there's
2: like this, but there is this. Uh, hobo-esque figure rummaging through the desk of the CEO of the company and they later mistake it for Hulo and Hulo is berated as shit by this German yeah. CEO of this silent door company and it's just more excuses for the silent door gag to be done Um, but it also is funny in a way like it's kind of like the ultimate on its face Hulo did not do this and we're and he is literally just life's victim to a certain extent.
3: And it also feels like uh, Tati just being like, I shoot my films without sound. Mm-hmm. What's like the funniest gag to comment on that? Like, yeah. How, what can I take advantage of in this situation?
2: Sometimes the funniest sound is the sound you don't make. Uh, That's why I quit doing so- stand-up. Socrates. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sterling should have done stand-up as Hulot. That, that's what you were missing. You could have done your own music hall act. Can you Im- do an impression of a gentleman riding a horse and being the horse at the same time?
3: Uh, you guys at home cannot see this, but I'm doing it. Excellent. Oh my God,
2: Henry! You can even see it through here too through the zoom. He's doing it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. He did it. He 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 went over three poles. The cardboard crowd goes crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I think I sprained my ankle. They're gonna have to turn me into glue. <laughs> um, one of the commentators brings up the the false hulos, mm, uh, yeah. and Hulo brings it up in terms of you can tell he just wanted to be on screen less. Yeah. So the gag of like, well, I might as well give the people what they want. Like, let me find surrogate hulos, and then the the quote. I think this is again from Kemp, but it was uh these surrogate hulos show up, uh, and the hulos are there to create disruption and the fertile possibilities of human error to bring creativity to an over-designed environment. Um, And I just, I thought that was like exactly what the function of Hulo in this world is.
2: It's, 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 um, it's the real world straight down the line equivalent of I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. It's someone going, I am Hulo, I am Hulo, I am Hulo, I am Hulo. You know, that that yeah, exactly. Um And
3: I, I kept thinking of it as he's an agent of chaos, like sort of a bugs bunny type, in a in a subdued way, but the way that he phrases it is creative uh destruction.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: I was like, so in a sense it becomes more like the Joker where everybody's wearing the Joker mask buddy. <laughs> And then Joaquin Phoenix goes back into the mental hospital. Um, but no, it, no, it it's true. The Agent of Chaos thing exemplifies itself in the first two outings. In this one, we're kind of seeing that the world, being larger as it should be, by the time you get to a big city, is going to be full of people like him. And <clears throat>
3: here's a, international people like him.
2: Yes, international. Uh, well, as we've proven. American, old American ladies love Hulo. You know how they, you know how much they love him? They even love him when he's just fixing a lamp. He learned how to turn on a lamp and those ladies were like, damn. (laughs) Because that through line every time, if we watch traffic and it's just a scene with him making out with a bunch of little old ladies, I'm not going to be surprised at this point. Um, but you no, know, the uh the thing I was gonna bring up though, we ended at the airport in Mononcla mm-hmm. And we're arriving here, and conceivably the thought is Hulo's arriving at the airport. Although it's kind of unclear if Hulo came in at the airport at any point, because we are tricked with the first fake hulo, which is a British hulo, which I. Love. I'm not hulo. What? Are <laughs> you mad? I think you have I think, been mistaken. Good, what's I, I What you're talking about? It was. <laughs> it's like watching. It like watching uh uh fucking Terry. Oh god, I'm gonna get butchered. I'm gonna remember the name uh from uh it's a mad 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 world. Terry Thomas, I think it is. Terry Thomas. Uh, like, but if he were hulo and we took away his mustache, like he kind of had that air about him. Um, but yeah, I would
3: say the entire airport is is a MacGuffin. Like in a lot of ways, it's it's just kind of a tone piece that sits there, but mm-hmm. yeah. it has nothing to do with the plot.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's um,
3: the tourists show up. That's what you get at the airport.
2: Yeah, you get the tourists, and you also kind of it actually is a good way of easing you into what this movie is, which is taking its time. Um, <clears throat> anytime you think it's supposed to cut away to something important, it's actually just cutting to another angle of coverage. Um uh actually there are funny moments in that airport too. Um I'd argue that that photographer who's taking pictures of the Mr. President um is incredibly goofy and incredible like cuz he's literally like he's doing something that I don't think I've ever seen a photographer do unless they were absolutely needing to where he's like literally just putting his foot up <laughs>
3: In the climbing world, we would call that a tow hook. Okay, He tow hooks a uh, um, newspaper stand in order to extend himself to get a shot.
2: To get a shot. And I'm like, dude, he's right near with you, buddy. Like, you can just go right on in there. Like
3: yeah, the, You know, the things that DP will do.
2: Yeah, the like, things we're that DP. We're D- all filmmakers here. Exactly. Like, uh, excuse me, Wally Fister, you don't need that entire crane to do this shot. No, but it would look fucking cool now, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I say, Wally, do we need any more of those IMAX cameras? No, I need all of them. Can you go get more, Chris? Get more. Do it for me, please. I'm Wally. Um, actually, the, the the airport, though, does set up the fact of this, not just this agent of chaos where or, the, or this idea of multiple Hulos and whatnot. Um, it also establishes our soundscape. Yeah. Which is way more subdued than anything Tati's done up to this point, I feel. I feel like this one is so specific that it, I, I turned the volume up on this thing multiple times, and I still don't have my soundbar hooked into my television yet. So for all I know, I, I, I could be way off. But it seemed like from the moment that the opening music stopped on this film and we began, we're dealing with quiet, 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 at a level that not even Mononcle deals with.
3: You know, it's like wall-to-wall sound if you listen to it loud. But it's all, like, room tone.
2: It's room tone and it's specific.
3: Very, very specific. Yeah. It jumps in perspective.
2: Um, Henry, did you get that feeling from this as well?
4: Yeah, I, I agree with Sterling. It is There is very much this very hard room tone presence throughout. Even in, like, the quiet moments, you have this kind of presence there to, at all times and i felt like it was very it's very reminiscent of any city i think and i think and i feel like that's what the film's really going for is getting this kind of city feeling where it's it's never quiet even in the quietest mm-hmm. moments like there's always something overarching and kind of always
3: something yeah so it sounds awesome. that you don't so. hear until you're trying to record something yeah and then you can't unhear him yeah, you can't yeah. isolate him
2: well you two have been sound engineers before like can both of you speak to like do you find admiration for what he's doing here with this like as within the sound realm
3: i know i do mm-hmm. i would listen to this movie on, on headphones, yeah
2: yeah like like, like a, a like a white noise uh, machine oh that's actually a pretty good idea <laughs> um and henry's the same
4: yeah, I mean, I I watched the movie with like noise canceling headphones, and it is very meticulous. Like everything else in the film, very meticulously crafted to really nailing those small points, and those small details, and carving them
3: out into the sound mix. Mm-hmm. He that brings really that cool. up in the um, the supplement that's uh, the the seventy two uh, San Francisco International Film Festival panel. Yes, Where he deliberately talks about his use of stereo and isolating sound Mm -hmm. uh to use it to create another space
2: yeah which we've talked about before you actually you mentioned this about like what some perceive as a sound mistake is actually a sound intent
3: yeah well he has that whole quote about taking creating extra dimensions by taking background sounds and foregrounding them Mm -hmm. or when he creates a bug like that doesn't exist just by sound effect, you know? Yeah, or or, in, a, or,
2: or like the sound of the spring door in uh, Hulot's Holiday, which is like sort of like a fabricated spring.
3: It's that's not, right, yeah.
2: It's not a specific like spring, but also like the sounds of glass in here sound real, but I can tell they're clearly not the sound of glass. When
3: they pour the glass into the bucket of champagne mm-hmm. and that's like clearly on the soundtrack, it's, it's ice at this point. Like they're really selling the transformative effort in that regard uh or when the man it's commented on like when the man rips his pants on the chair mm. that you know Hulo or, or tati rather i also have a hard time separating them in my head but uh he recorded so many different elements until he got the right rip for that effect and then he manipulated it in post until he got like the perfect uh element there the only thing i can really think of that comes close to the elaborateness uh, henry i'm sure you can speak to this as well but like um, when you watch Hitchcock's *The Birds* and you hear about the making yeah. of the sound effects and the sound design in *The Birds*, it's the, like
2: where it's because it's and to be clear, it's not Bernard Herrmann doing it, but he's supervising this machine that creates these sounds. And it's 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 um it's the electronica that's similar to um the elements that John Carpenter would use down the line, but it's being used for practical stuff. It's not being used necessarily as a score. And yet, it becomes a score, just like Tati's films. Their sounds become their own score.
3: Yeah, I would say every sound in this, including voices, uh, is is a soundtrack. Like first and foremost, this is a soundtrack film. Mm -hmm. with painstaking attention taken to the details that play over it.
2: Yeah, and I made the joke about White Noise Machine, but it's like a genuine, like, I genuinely now want to take it, put it in Premiere, rip it, and just listen to the soundtrack when I'm going to bed now. Like, I could do that for my uncle. uh, Probably not George DeFet. That's full of fucking music and dialogue, and I'd be wanting to watch the movie. Um, But this one, I could literally do that and find myself in that frame of mind. And actually... I, I know we're kind of jumping around in plot here, but before I lose my train much like of thought, the film, yes, much like the film, can we talk about the Royal Garden? It's the biggest set piece in the movie. It's it predominates the film by like what anywhere from thirty to forty minutes. I think
3: I think it's listed as forty five. I didn't <clears throat> I didn't take the note, but I know someone had mentioned forty five minutes.
2: Yeah, the reason I think about it and th- can can narrow it down to that number is because I looked at the time code a couple times but I, I wasn't always gauging where it ends specifically, but this Royal Garden sequence is an exercise in what Frank Black from the Pixies talks about in the Magnificent Tati documentary, which is just like either you're either going to get it or you're not going to get it. You just got to sit down and experience it. This was the ultimate exercise in patience for Tati when it came to me, and I know that that sounds backward and uncooperative with, um, the desired effect of many elements of art cinema. But if there was any point in this film that pushed my patience, it was the Royal Garden scene. But because there is so much to watch in it, I found myself wanting to rewatch rather than just slogging through it. I actually ended up rewinding. Which ended up making the watching experience three hours instead of two hours the first time because I started noticing all that stuff like the pouring of champagne into the hats thing I didn't think that was a gag until I saw the special features afterwards and then went back to it and then rewatched it and saw how the everything was choreographed I'm like oh that's a gag so it's not now that i know that it's a gag it's something i can anticipate down the line rather than just you know thinking like oh it's just this mundane action like no it's a joke
3: this is one of the weirdest experiences in in viewing that like i've ever had in that regard that like there are things that you pick up uh during that scene there's a the neighbor that is undressing uh that's Tati's friend that's undressing, the doing the suspender, under. he's his old war buddy because he's always running into war buddies. Let me yeah. take a step back on that. And he does a bit of a wardrobe change in his house and then goes out to dinner in the very back left when everything has fallen apart and people are just partying. That man is on stage doing like a burlesque show for two old women and like doing a full tease where he'll like, is he going to do the shirt? Nope. He's doing the cufflink. And I don't think I caught that till the fourth time I'd seen it. So for every joke that you miss and then catch in a rewatch, there are also things that just like don't hit you on the first viewing. Mm -hmm. The hat sequence actually was one that felt a little flat to me because it's so late in the anarchy. Mm
6: -hmm. Uh,
3: And I just kind of zoned out on it and didn't take note. And then uh, now I just think it's such a beautiful shot.
2: That's how I felt about the... Woman at the uh, piano. We have um, our our lead tourist at the piano before that older singer Barbara. Barbara is our tourist. Yeah, and she. But there's a woman that comes up to the piano who used to play, who used to sing, and had a hit record. And suddenly she's got this whole story. I wasn't paying attention to that the first time because some sometimes with the dialogue in a Tati movie, and I don't know Henry, how you feel about this, but I know Sterling and I have talked about the dialogue. At many points can be unimportant because it's just the way people talk, and it's not necessarily telling a story. But this normal way in which somebody would talk is actively telling a story within this story, and it's remarkable that it's literally happening in the third, like in the third right-hand part of the frame. Like it's remarkable.
3: And Henry, jump in anytime. I'm very
2: caffeinated. yeah, yeah I'm very caffeinated. Hop in here. Yeah.
3: <laughs> no, I mean I think
4: uh, with uh, to regards to that point. When watching it this time around, I was very, I recalled and just was thinking about you know, Robert Altman's kind of dis- distinct mm-hmm. style mm-hmm. is everyone talking over each other at the same time. And you kind of have to just kind of watch and kind of throw your own mindset into that scene in order to understand ex- what is being said, what do you want to pay attention to, what is important to mm-hmm. you, and that kind of thing. And I thought that's very much similar, th- both the sound design and the As opposed to Robert Altman, who's that's predominantly more of just an audio choice for him. In this film, it's very much like you're going to be hearing a thousand things and you're going to be seeing a thousand things, and it's up to you to figure out what you actually give a shit about. (laughs) And like that can be very overwhelming for some, but that can also be very. It gives the film a lot of rewatchability, I think. But it also is it's it's a challenging way to get across what you want to say and and to portray what you want to portray
3: and in that way i think the airport sequence i know we talked about how it's, it's kind of a write-off but mm-hmm. like in a lot of ways we're the character that arrives at the airport like we arrive we observe yeah. and that primes us for you're getting used to the vocabulary of like watching this movie like you're well, getting used to the exercise of scanning the, frames
2: we are the tourists uh
3: yeah i know it's me johnny depp the tour <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was here the whole time.
4: <laughs> Golden Globe nominated comedy
2: actor Johnny Depp and The Tourist. Do you have any regrets, Mr. Tati? Yes, that I did not make a, a movie with Angelina Jolie and Johnny Depp, um, and uh, that it was not called The Tourist, and that it was not terrible.
3: <laughs> that was based on a script that he wrote, right? I, I, around this time. I, I and mean, then,
2: clearly, yeah, yeah. It was one of many Tati's many thrown out scripts. You know, Inglorious Bastards is actually based on on a tati story about his time in the hulo's time in the war and are then,
3: we riffing or is that true
2: that i no, it's not true oh. we're riffing but can you imagine because <laughs> let's let's circle back for a quick second because i do have a question for henry but hulo was in the fucking war
3: yeah <laughs> this but- was
2: not revealed the first two times was it <laughs> Well, I, I thought more
3: so that, you know, like in France, and I don't know when it started, but like there was that two year mandatory conscription. Yes, you know? that is true. Yeah. So yeah. I just assumed, and I had a thought of that in terms of the way that people are isolated uh, in the society. And I wondered if that, a lot of this movie, I'm like, is this, is this a comment? Cause yeah. it's such a, a, you know, there's so much going on here. But I wondered as he's breaking down society as being something that like isolates people and puts people in these fish bowls, um, is is he saying that for young men or for men in France, the only time they've really known a communal experience in the modern age is during their their mandatory service?
2: That's a very good question.
3: Because um, Hulot's suddenly plagued with everyone he bumps into every ten minutes is like, oh, from the, you know from the army, and that's the only time he's not alone in this
2: world. Right, and not only that though, it shows the distinct line of who's been able to acclimate and who hasn't
3: yeah who's still a, a high school quarterback in their head and who yeah or, uh, or like who runs a business and,
2: yeah or who's stuck in the village versus who has learned how to adapt to a post to uh, to a post-war world where manufacturing is a key source business is a far more streamlined and i th- i would i would argue less aesthetically grungy than an industrialist might have been in the gilded age um sorry for all the fancy words but the the ideas that everything has become so innovative so fast and tati in a weird way i think it's exemplified by the it's extremely exemplified by the apartment complex scene
3: have you seen jorda henry uh yes i think i have Okay, you know yeah. the newsreel about American yes, like, yeah. um, post post office. post officers, yeah. And like we all have to do our part to keep up with the Americans. Right? <laughs> um, this this mm-hmm. society feels born out of that world, like as though that newsreel were real. This is the the motor age city that you get from that mentality of mm-hmm. like, we quickly need to hurry up and catch up. And then who has money? Americans. Our our main business here is entertaining Americans and or uh, emulating their their practices Hulo says in the uh, interview again in in the San Francisco Film Festival when he's uh, talking about the film he says you know I didn't want an old comedy I wanted a new comedy Hulo is not comfortable he doesn't belong in this world so Mm -hmm. he can't be the driving force the driving force has to be this uh, you know stuffy little architect who's just like mad at everyone because they won't conform to his vision. And he has to rather conform to practicalities. Like Even though our... he's
2: barely in the movie by comparison to other characters. But
3: he's like, uh, I think they describe him as wizard. Kemp describes him as the Wizard of Oz, this like force mm-hmm. behind the scenes who's been creating all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but then he uh, Tati also brings up the American, the flashy American businessman at the end. And he's like, he can survive in this world this world is for him and he can be the conductor of these antics but like really hulo in that case is there to exist and step back and and be part of it but, but yeah not but, the driving
2: but he, yeah but he can't he can't control it but it's kind of weird because hulo always feels like he can't control anything no matter where he is and it doesn't seem like that's his intent his t- intent is to exist to live to like it, it's it's never felt like he wants to be a leader per se except when it comes to making sure those kids are behaving in mon mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I I find that the- Even then, not really,
3: because yeah. he just walks up, walks into that gag, gets scolded by that woman, and then his, his nephew's that's like, true, come yeah. on, let's go get donuts. No, he's he's always, the world is always acting upon him, and I think the only time that yeah, Tati, true. whether it's Francois or, or uh, Hulo, is at home, is in a public house. Uh, listening to music or watching something on the television or or telling stories
2: would it be would it be presumptuous to say that hulo is a loner and prefers it that way
3: no i I don't actually i disagree
2: but but because the only reason i say that is because yeah there have been comfortable moments except for the fact that he does like to interact with people because we've literally talked about that for two three two movies with hulo three with tati overall so like I think it's it's just a matter of what Tati is saying of like he just doesn't fit as things keep moving forward. Like he becomes less and less integral to the moving parts of that society. Yeah,
3: he's the best part of like day drinking at a pub. <laughs> that, that seems like, Tati, like that's Tati's strength is just kind of humbugging and being like a general good hang in a pub. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I think like he really blossoms... Uh, when they, when they, when they Royal Garden falls apart, and the American takes the initiative and says like, "No, this destructed zone," which honestly looks like any hip restaurant or coffee house now, it's just exposed brick and wood. Yeah. Um. But when he claims that as his private club, uh, and then and then Hulo suddenly in that environment is like shining mm-hmm. again, and that's I think like his journey was to get there, and he is the catalyst in a lot of ways that creates that club yeah but yeah that's that's his natural environment i'd say
2: and that unraveling in the club in the royal garden is personified in a lot of ways by the waiter outside just slowly but surely being unwound because this the royal garden is effectively a new opening club that is actively falling apart under chaos that begins with one tile stuck on a person's foot. It's weird because the, the the sequence is about 40 to 45 minutes as we were talking about, and it's very funny, but it also doesn't care whether or not you think it's funny. And that's kind of the way life operates in <laughs> a lot of extent. It's like literally sitting down for an actual dinner at this restaurant is how you're experiencing it. And as a result, I guess subjectively, my point of view was I've seen a, a a restaurant fall under this chaos. Obviously not, you know, the wall tearing down or the roof coming off, but I've seen that chaos unfold and there have been funny moments small within this. So it's it's. It's like the cheapest way I could go to a restaurant now is to sit down with my meal and then watch this sequence for 45 minutes before I carry on with the rest of my night. It's, 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 and in a sense, Tati is creating this VR room for me that I don't know if I want, but I'm happy that it's around should I want it. Like, cause that's the thing. Here's a question. We talked about a couple of gags in here and we should talk about the interview sequence too, but are, is this a film that you, found pleasure in like genuine pleasure the way we think about most films like when we walk out of a film and we are like so happy that we wanted that we saw that and we immediately want to go again like how eager were you to go back to this upon re-watching it the first time for the for the review because this was my first time experiencing it and i can tell you that no matter how much i felt like i wasn't getting it i was so excited to pop it back on a few days later and then so excited to pop it on again this morning.
3: Yeah, I'd be curious to know how you feel about it, Henry. For me, it's as soon as we get the the music cue and the tuba hits at the end. Like, we get the crescendo of vehicles in that last 15 minutes. I am, like, overwhelmed and I can't wait to watch this again. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult. Th- in my personal experience,
4: I've found it difficult to watch a Tati film and then finish it and not just be filled with joy <laughs> in a way. Like, it's... uh. I, it's, it's definitely, I mean, even, like, regardless of what the subject matter and the theme of the film is, I think he, there's just so much passion behind it that I, it's hard not to just be overcome with excitement, in my mind, when I watch mm-hmm. one of his films. So, like, when this film ends, it's, I, I mean, I'm not someone who really gets the urge to immediately jump back in and rewatch something, but I have, it's always a pleasure to re-watch a Tati film, which I can't really say that about any other director. Yeah. Like, I think it's the... The definition of like the the best person to watch continuously over and
2: over again. That's that's what I've been feeling as this series has gone on. Like I have never felt this excited to rewatch films constantly in preparation for an episode than I am when we do a Tati film. And I think that if anything, like I know that the the Royal Garden does it for us, but for me the opening sequence is actually like one of my favorite opening sequences to a Tati film ever. Um, or not the opening sequence, I'm sorry, the interview sequence um, is one of my favorite sequences in a Tati thing ever because it's both hilarious and sad to watch.
3: Go ahead and set that up for him for
2: us. Yeah, so for people who don't know Tati, I mean, obviously we've talked about Tati going in for this interview. He literally gets off of a bus and then goes into this tall building and we are led into this building initially by
3: one of the best gags in cinematic uh, oh history God. one of the most effective gags I'm
2: a, I'm a fucking idiot because the first time I watched it I wasn't catching that I'm that stupid
3: <laughs> you know you know that stupid the movie it's it's the uh, movie's
2: actively playing the best possible trick on you
3: yeah it's uh it's incredible I, I think I didn't catch it till the second rewatch but it, it's
2: it's the it's so the gag is um that a, a gentleman conceivably comes up to an old man on the street and asks him for a light for a cigarette and then this old gentleman points out that they have to go over another way and then it pulls out to reveal that they've actually that the old man is actually behind glass
3: one the old man is the doorman that Tati loves so much mm-hmm. he's inside a building he's standing he does this twice very successfully both times it's like the best special effect i've ever seen um, and it's just playing on the idea that glass is transparent mm-hmm. and you can't tell when this boundary is. Also a huge theme in this film is like invisible or created boundaries, <laughs> barriers, but uh, it's screen left, old man staring out. looks like he's standing on the sidewalk. And then a man comes in from screen right and asks him for a light for a cigarette. Yep. And then we pull back slightly just enough to reveal that they're on two opposite sides of a pane of glass that we didn't see. And then they have to track over, walk to the entrance of the building. And it's then that we cut back outside. The soundtrack changes. We go from that interior room tone to the cityscape sound effects that are like the noise floor for that part of the film. And and that's when Hulo then enters and, and kind of bumps into this thing uh, you know, in Meteor Res. And then he presents that man with the uh, the ticket. For his appointment, yeah, that's the entrance. But it's, uh, it's I. It's like one of the most brilliant, brilliant gags.
2: It's just, and it's just, it's something that gets better every time you're rewatching it. It never, it it never ceases to give you an additional factor to it. But then he's brought in it's sleight of hand. This, yeah, it's like a magic trick. It is like a magic trick, and there's a magical illusion effect that happens as he's getting. Brought in to wait for this interview. And I don't know why I love this. So please forgive me if I'm just the worst. But um, when he's waiting, they have Hulo and the old man on the left-hand side. And we have a long hallway down. And through sound, we are first hearing and then watching the approach of the interviewer. And I love when things just take their time and the sound effect and the constant, the consistency of that sound effect and watching it, it almost feels like because of the way the camera's set up that the man is actually getting further away the more he walks
5: than actually
2: getting closer.
3: Well, it turns out that Tati directed him at the, at the beginning of that sequence to march in place to make the hallway seem even longer.
2: Oh. That says ah, ah ah. This is like we're talking about last week, oh last episode. Why do you wait like how can you not think of this? And then you just it suddenly ends up being the simplest explanation.
3: Yeah, I just got I got grilled recently at a film mixer by the by the film commissioner uh who uh, who was kind of just scolding me on that like young filmmakers were we hit a stage where we like come out of education. Start doing this for reels, and then you kind of just forget how to come up with solutions, simple solutions on the fly. And it and you're more thinking, how do I engineer a hallway to make it longer? And you're forgetting like I could just have a guy march in place for a while and then take progressively larger steps as he gets closer yeah. to cheat this. But he kind of was just more or less dragging me a bit for not being uh not taking creative cheats when I could. Right. You know.
2: But these are things that Tati thrives on because he's, it doesn't matter if this is the most expensive film made in France at this point, he's still having to cheat.
3: And he's got a fanny pack full of mime tricks. Yeah, And exactly. vaudeville tricks. Which know? how
2: many of us have that? I mean, you didn't get your fanny pack full of mime tricks at birth, did you?
3: No, no, I didn't. I bought it way after the kids were doing it and I, I, I feel weird wearing it across my chest. Yeah,
2: exactly. And yeah. Henry, they didn't. Mine was a graduation <laughs> gift. Henry, you weren't even allowed to have a mine gift. They told you to fuck right off, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. What did you do to piss off the mimes again, Henry? <laughs> we don't talk about it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, my favorite Disney song. Now, um, um, now, but uh, the, the remainder of that scene, though, is Hulo waiting for the interview, and we get that specific... Gentleman, who's also interviewing, who almost is a walking in joke on the commentary itself.
3: You're talking about the wind-up toy man.
5: Yeah, wind-up toy man. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. I almost wanted to like. I, I I was trying to learn the choreography and I couldn't remember each step. Like, you know, like that. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's it's kind of like watching. The, somebody do the robot, but not doing it ironically. Yeah,
3: he's like a series of affects mm-hmm. just stuffed into a like a weird golem.
2: It, yeah, it's it's very bizarre, and it's not helped by the fact that they're all sitting in these fucking lovely chairs. I couldn't find out. Did anybody here manage to find out how the fuck they kept that that those chairs to uh, chairs deflated for longer than a second? <laughs> Because when he's sitting down in the first chair prior to that guy coming in, he pushes down on the head of it and it's down for a minute and then goes up. There's a
3: beat. I assumed they invented a new chair for this movie.
2: I thought either that or there's a very, very thin wire pulling it up after it's pushed down all the way. But like... It was just one of those things where I'm just like, this is, this is just a cartoon. This is just a fucking cartoon.
3: So that's a weird, I mean, and it does. There's like so much Doug Jones in this in so many ways. But mm-hmm. like, uh, that was a thing that I didn't, I sought this movie out because I, my grandparents had showed me, <laughs> uh, I think, Holiday or maybe Monocle. And um, <laughs> I, I get my own origin story confused all the time.
2: Just like Batman. <laughs> it's, it's
3: like the, uh, yeah, the multiverse thing now. the crook
2: once had a gun but then he didn't have a gun and then he had all the guns (laughs) (laughs) um
3: and yeah and my dad's like oh great well one you know eventually you gotta see playtime because that's that movie's incredible the chairs like he just threw off the chairs Mm -hmm. and then sighed and walked away And, and i remember watching it and just being like huh the chairs cut to like the fifth time i've seen this movie i'm i'm that maniac who's just screaming like i have like a Like a sign that I carry outside
2: of City Hall that just, (laughs) the chair is on it. The film conditioner's going down there going like, what the fuck is he babbling (laughs) about now?
6: It was the chair!
2: (laughs) (laughs) Surely, um, get security out there immediately. (laughs) Yeah, the gentleman in the, uh, in the fedora and the raincoat and the umbrella (laughs) holding up the sign. Um, now, um, but, um, I think, and also the the cubicle maze, which I think is the most predominant. Like, it's the most one of the most famous images from this film when you're selling this film, and, and it was
3: cut from the film.
2: Yeah, what the fuck? But why? Because it's such a lovely, lonely, depressing maze. Like it's it's like the game Mousetrap if it were sad, and because <laughs> <laughs> you like the my favorite moment of that is is like you're seeing all this stuff in the foreground, this formal business stuff and you look at Hulo and I can just imagine Hulo looking sad like with a tear rolling down his cheek going like, I guess I'll just wait here, right here, just wait for somebody to come and interview me for a job that my brother-in-law clearly wanted so that I could be even more of a hero to my nephew. <laughs>
3: one, <laughs> one, do you want to cough again? No. Okay. Uh, one of... <laughs> sorry one of the historians on the on the criterion describes this whole sequence as um playing on a comedy of corporeal absence which i i chewed on for a while on the drive over here i think that's why i drove to the wrong location because i was like chewing on so many phrases that uh, no one can turn a phrase like the french especially when talking about film Mm -hmm. Uh, my wife like rolled her eyes and left the room at one point she's like (laughs) They were talking about uh, how TVs are for receiving and projectors are for, uh, you know, displaying. And she's just like, Jesus fucking Christ. And like walked, stormed out of the room like.
6: It's a movie! (laughs)
3: She's like, nobody saw that. And I'm like, well, you know. Stop
6: looking into Endgame too much, Sterling!
3: But uh, honestly, the idea of it being a comedy of corporeal absence, I think unlocks a lot of why the sequences in the beginning are, Amusing gags that then feel like so haunting and, and unsettling at the same time. It's the reflections. It's the weird way that someone is in this part of the frame and then has to walk over here to then become a disembodied voice to come back over. And, like, you know, nobody is quite meeting on the same plane. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's in the same room.
1: You
2: know, Henry, I'm curious did, did you have any moments in the film where you felt that? kind of like haunted haunted vibe attached to it because like it's it's something that i would imagine you're a little you've you've been far more perceptive about some of these things in the past with Um, stuff you brought to the real nerds table not personally i
4: mean there was never at any point in the film that i was like oh um i was it was (laughs) that wasn't the reaction that i would probably give myself for the film i can (laughs) well i mean there was that uh, Wait, you but, mean the uh, jump scare in the elevator? Uh, that, not not entirely from my perspective anyway.
2: Hmm. I had this uh terrifying thought. In the it's after Hulo supposedly leaves um his buddy's apartment, and we go back to the apartment and just his buddy's settling in there, Schneider settling in there. Then he goes back and realizes that there's something at the door and it's Hulo and he doesn't know how to get out of the lobby. That was terrifying. Like it was like it's it's weird because the composition of it is something that I would now see in a horror movie with a smart house. Like that was so fucking out of its. Mo- like I almost felt like Jordan Peel made that shot for some reason. Um, uh, so like, uh, there's that. And then also, um, Hulo walking into the empty streets or, well not empty because there's a line of cars. But i don't know why but in that moment i was like man like obviously this world is very terrifying because it's so hyper consumerist and hyper uh uh, mechanized and it's it's giving me metropolis vibes and yet i would love to walk down that street right now like it's it's alluring while being terrifying all at once
3: yeah it's like um uh maybe ambrose beers or algernon blackwood someone has a short story about a street, just like a haunted street, um, and then I, I think for Blackwood, it's the willows as well. But it's that, that horror of just nothing really happens in the story, but like you're aware that there's some kind of like a paranormal sentience to it, like everything that's gone into it to to make it up.
2: There's there's an atmosphere that suggests to you, that suggests to you something could happen. But maybe your mind thinking something is going to happen is the real thing that's actually terrifying and not.
3: Yeah, or just like we've all believed in something to the point that it's become real, mm-hmm. um, even though it you know it's built out of like photo paper and and two D cars. No. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think what what is unsettling, uh, and I've thought about this in this film again on the drive over here, but it was. I saw this movie a long time ago. It hits in moments. There are things that hit that are unsettling in terms of just community being like subdivided and subdivided uh, and everybody being segmented to little rooms in buildings. Right. uh, In these like sweeping open floor plans, but then everybody's boxed in um, to these atmospheres that don't really seem to support life. Everything's kind of artificial. And like this movie didn't hit when I saw it when I was 14 or whatever, but uh, I've since like had weird nights where I'm just walking home late for some reason at like 1am and seeing the flicker of TVs in every high rise uh, and in every window and realizing or or sometimes it'll be like 830 and just on a Sunday and you're the only person out and it's a beautiful night and everybody's inside watching uh, something. And in this case it's it's creepier because there's like two channels and they're all watching the exact same thing right but um yeah again it's that sense of like instead of instead of a collective experience that you know we've we've all kind of been ushered away into into private spaces that are also part of the panopticon because you can see into all these apartments and he describes that um
2: turning our televisions all on at the same time at the same time on yeah. a ritualistic basis it's
3: it, it's a little haunting and either yeah. either i internalized this when i was 14 and have since like remembered that that kind of like weird haunting quality of it or he's tapping into something that's so universal and so much part of the collective unconscious that uh that I like re-experienced it later in a
2: different world. Right. Yeah, um, can I can I read something for you guys that I'll always taps into how we got to this point from a Parisian standpoint? Because the whole time that this film was looming in the uh, in the in the mind of like we were going to talk about this film. <clears throat> It's almost like watching Tati has been like watching a history lesson in French history that i would never gotten before, specifically post-war France. Um, and um, David Bellos' book, he goes into, into detail, but it's a long paragraph, but hear me out on this. The rebuilding of Paris and its suburbs was underway. Even in St. Uh, Germain, older houses in Rue Voltaire were being knocked down by developers. <coughs> intent on erecting seven story blocks in a Milanese style as Tati put in his protest to the departmental authorities. But a new Paris of steel and glass had not yet really emerged in, from building sites. The great towers of Main Montpass and the defense bills, business zone did not yet exist. Tativille was a construction of the future of the city, a future that has now arrived, but not one that Tati readily could find in a physical form at the time that he had planned and made his film. Of course, the pressure for rebuilding of the city along American lines had been present for most of the century, most notably in the well-publicized and thankfully imaginary projects of Le Corbusier, who could have built a vast avenue of freestanding Chrysler buildings all the way from Paris to Saint-Germain, and whose Voisin, my God, Damn it, I suck at French. Uh, Of 1925 projected the total dismantling of the center of Paris and its replacement by 18 geometrically spaced towers. But depression, defeat, German occupation, and the colonial wars had all but put such plans on hold for more than 30 years. The fabric of central Paris had changed remarkably little since Tati's youth. Even those special symbols of the post-war era, the UNESCO headquarters and the Maison de Radio, Exempted from planning restrictions were not properly finished until 1962, since much of the urban fabric had deteriorated in the meantime and the accumulated pressures from modernization and expansion were all greater as France grew more prosperous by the day. It was only in 1961 that building regulations were changed to allow high-rise construction in the city itself and it was several more years before large structures resembling that of the playtime sets actually appeared on the horizon the science facility in Jisu the onsite of the, on the site of the old Halle Alvin for which Jacques Lagrange designed the floor mosaics, was begun in 1965. Tativille was complete by then and finished in 1967, more or less coinciding with the release of Tati's film. The plans for the businesses around the La Défense were approved in 1964, but not much of it was visible above the ground until 1970, and the scale and ugliness of the site did not become a matter of public concern until 1972. But the virulent display that then arose one architect at least seems to have been inspired by Tativille long since demolished. Emile Alliard proposed to complete and humanize La Défense by putting up two curving blocks covered with mirror glass in which Parisians might see the reflected images of the city's more familiar monuments. This is precisely what Tati allows us and American tourists to see in the city of playtime. The Sacre Coeur, the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe, Reflected in the plate glass doors of the travel agency. So, two things. One is as we're, as we've been talking about, and as Sterling has pointed out so eloquently, you know, there's reflect- I wouldn't say eloquently. Well, there's think- well there's there's reflections of what Paris was and its heritage, reflecting amid this new steel this this steel future. But we're also under the we were under the impression that maybe this is an example of what post-war France has actually become. And in fact, it's actually a look at what it could become and partially did end up becoming and finding out that Jacques Lagrange is actually partially responsible for the development of one of those structures indicates that not only is Tativille prescient, um, but it was directly influential in the construction of post-war Paris into this more streamlined consumerist venture
3: and he points out as well uh tati that the even though he finds it nightmarish Mm -hmm. uh all of the structures that he designs in this movie he designs to be beautiful
2: yeah yeah he's made that clear as far back as the omnibus that we've that we've dissected a couple times he's just like this is this is Look, I get a bad rap for hating buildings, but I like fucking buildings, <laughs> like you know. <laughs> um, and uh, but more importantly, I think there's also, or I, I think there's in in this description, we're also getting this sense of like the the trajectory was already on point, point. and so it's so interesting that Tativille sits around for a year and a half. And some more than one person must have seen those structures up because they're pretty fucking tall. And so like, it's it's sad that the man, one of the men along with Lagrange who is responsible for that innovative look for purposes of comedy ends up becoming broke from this film. And yet people who might have looked at those structures get rich off of constructing those structures for real. <laughs> That's fucking sad <laughs> and it's depressing um to think about. but can we end on a happy note with the ending of this film? Because I think there's a happiness to this because everybody fucking unwinds for once. Yes, yeah, that's what a, I feel.
3: It's a joy like it's the reason that I I want to come back it, because the the celebration of uh Tati coming in destroying the world as we know it you know it actually starts with a jazz musician who is told he can't come into the club maybe because he's black and then they find out he's a musician invite him back in and then he goes on stage and just launches into this trumpet solo that gets like everybody so amped up that they eat this restaurant alive uh, and then tati
2: i I hate to interject but but, we didn't we should talk about that real quick is that commentary or is that because that it's i don't know what that perception of the civil rights movement has to mirror in france at this time but it's being made around time that we're we're actively engaged in the civil rights movement in the 60s
3: i think even though france is much more um you know open open to uh integration mm-hmm. i do think that in certain establishments like maybe it's just a numbers game but like the probability of you being like wealthy enough to enter this club exclusive club and also be black is is probably that that, there's no way that that joke isn't a commentary yeah
2: that's that was my thought too but it's just so brief and we've barely touched this at all in in tati actually we've not not touched it once
3: well we've always been in a countryside or a suburb which are you know not integrated spaces at this time and now we're in a major city where we've got uh, we even have a black hilo Yes, we do. Um,
2: yes, we have a we have a we have a black hulo. We're
3: seeing like the Epcot Center, you know, uh, version <laughs> the like
2: Epcot of hulos. <laughs> would would anybody go to Disney World now, knowing that there would be an Epcot Center full of hulos? I think so. The kids love hulo. <laughs> <laughs> do do you think he could team up with Luke Skywalker or something for one of their stage shows over there down at the Magic Kingdom? <laughs>
4: My um, name is Mr. Hulot, and no, you're watching the Disney Channel. And then they just the whole
2: thing. Coming up next, Zenon, the sequel. Johnny <laughs> Tsunami. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, though, but no, you're right. It's, it's the culmination of this joy. And it's, I love how, in one instance, when we get to the roundabout, um, which I love a good joke about roundabouts, because roundabouts fucking suck. because um, we have a couple here in Colorado then they suck. Um, but um just watching every single comical thing that could happen from Tati's music hall pass or circus pass occurring on a circle uh, on a circular traffic structure is just remarkable. It's an orchestra of chaos.
3: Yeah, he is the illusionist in that sequence. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Coming down to the joke of the guy cleaning the window and as he tilts the frame up and down, the people on the bus cheer as though they're on a roller coaster.
2: I was baffled by that joke at first until I watched it the second time and just kind of got lost in the madness.
3: Again, once you watch for it, you're like, this is an unbelievable shot.
2: And the, the little kid walking down the street with that suit and his head keeps popping in and out like he's fucking Charlie McCarthy or something like it's fucking like, it's it's just absolutely bananas. Like what what stands out to you the most for? Like what what is the is what is that the moment the moment with the glass that gives you that most joy, that the most joy out of it?
3: No, I think for me it's the it's that smash cut between the daytime. All the lights starting to come on and then just nighttime mm-hmm. and the 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 theme of the film plays again uh, after being distorted into the circus uh, anthem and and it's just lights dancing on different planes like yeah when the when the movie ends i'm, I'm overwhelmed with with how well how well those shots are put together
2: and, and can, uh, I, w-
3: I have what a... about you henry
2: oh yeah henry what about you by all means
3: um uh...
4: I don't know i mean i uh i leave the film with a sense of hope
2: i guess Mm.
4: um elaborate well i mean we see
3: uh i'm I'm sorry what was the question again we were talking about the sequence at the end the last yeah okay sorry yeah i I got caught up in my head for a second um yeah, I mean, man, the, no I was thinking as a sound man, as soon as you hear that tuba on the soundtrack, yeah. you must just yeah. know what you're in for. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I think the
4: at the end of the film, like the the image that really stuck with me at the end of the film was uh, as the bus is driving away, you see all of the overhead lights, uh, and I yeah. maybe it's me pulling at straws, but it, to me it looked like almost like
3: a blooming of flowers. Uh, like across the landscape and you have like the, the, well, uh, he had just made the metaphor of her bouquet of lilies yeah. and then the lights. Yeah.
4: And so I kind of, I kind of looked at as almost like a sign of hope and a sign of where we are and what we are representing does not have to be this way. And I kind of view it as that I, I view it as a sense of hope in my, in my opinion.
2: Is it the sense that this structure doesn't have to dominate our
5: very yeah, existence? Yeah, and I think
4: there's there's room for I think because the film presents the city and the society as a very structured and very rigid kind of idea, mm-hmm. and to have those bends in the uh, streetlights, I think shows the flexibility that we that we can have. Uh,
2: could you could I could I propose a theory based off of that? Because do. there's actually there's a scene before and Sterling maybe. Maybe you'll understand where I'm going with this. Um, After they leave the club, we cut to the outside of the club, and it's the break of dawn. And we've had a rollicking night. And when we go to the outside of the streets, people are stumbling home. And when I say stumble, I mean they're kind of walking naturally rather than rigidly or with purpose. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they've had a huge rager... And they're now having a little bit of a hangover, and that hangover is allowing them to be human for once. Well, it's
3: that like post orgasm bliss is. is Yeah, I, I really feel like the the crescendo at the restaurant is this like big collective orgasm. Yeah, and then everybody's just the the after party. Like, I think are you talking about the the men digging the hole? the men in the sidewalk
2: well the men digging in the hole but also the couple walking by and going like i love paris at this time of the day like like <gasps> well, me too yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much a it's almost like the love it's a love story about the city and its people falling in love with each other like the city the the people of the city falling in love with the city
3: or like the city becoming human through yeah. the transformative act of dis- creative destruction.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Because of that it's lost it, it's it's lost this metro- metropolis style rigidity run by the Moloch. And instead it's it's become an actual vibrant area that can be both rigid but beautiful and unique all at once. It's almost like it's it 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 got sober and became human again, as opposed to when it was drunk, it was just operating off of a stillness and like what it perceives to be human. But then once you clean up, you realize it's actually this is how it's natural to, to operate.
3: It is interesting as well the shift in class focus mm-hmm. following the nightclub scene. Like the city in the morning belongs to a working class individual. Yeah. Uh, and as as, you know, everybody's stumbling home, uh, the people that, you know, the blue-collar people have gotten up with the sun yeah, and are getting to work, digging holes or fixing pipes. And the movie really does center every scene after that on pipe fitters, uh, sewermen, taxi drivers. It, it's as though, like, they they're given the city in a lot of ways
2: in a sense too it actually pushes against anybody who's saying that tati is against these structures because in a sense he's like well yes these are the scary parts of an urban metropolis like this and yet here at the end i'm going to show you the heart and soul of this community which is the people who are working nine to five or in many cases, eight to midnight or whatever it may be, but these are the people that surround the area with color and character.
3: And wouldn't you say they're the people that are hushed out of the Royal Garden as the first person pulls up in a Royce? Mm-hmm. They're the the all the working class people are shoot out of the room. Yeah, and then it's after they they destroy the place um,
2: that they start to encounter those people inside the drugstores.
3: Well, no, they encounter them before that. In oh. the nightclub. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they start pouring champagne for them. Mm-hmm. And they even get the stuffiest of the stuffy dudes, you know, like the dean. He's like the mean dean of the university <laughs> that is this restaurant. They even get him to pour a glass of, uh, albeit it's Alka-Seltzer, but he yeah. tries to share a drink with them. There's, mm-hmm. There is this moment, and I did think of that as maybe, you know, kind of falling in with Tati, that like, like you're saying, like amidst all the rigidity, like he knows that people are these like funny social animals yeah that if given an opportunity will will act in community and, and so there is a triumphal triumphant note there.
2: Right. It 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 you know I, I I guess the there's one question that I have for everybody here. And it really boils down to is this film something that you can recommend to somebody without any hesitation?
3: I've got a whole take on that. I'll let you start, Henry. <laughs>
4: okay. Yeah, Henry, um,
2: please, please, please give us your thoughts.
4: Okay. Well, uh, I think short answer yes. I would probably be like, you should check this out knowing with you know experience of how when I recommend foreign films to people they never check them out so I would have full I would have full <laughs> confidence in being able to say you should check this out um, however I don't ah. think this is a great introduction to Tati I don't think that, I think there if I if someone was like I think I want to watch a Tati movie what should I watch I've never seen anything this would not be the one I would say uh, no. however mm. uh, I think this I love this movie and I would I would recommend it to anyone who I think would Anyone who would want to even consider watching this movie would love this movie, I think.
2: Right. That's fair. That's very fair. And it's really, what is your take on this? Like, what, what? how do you take this?
3: Well, my take is that um, it gets brought up a couple times in the commentary, like Tati. Uh, there, there's a point where someone, a scholar, is talking about sex and violence in his movies. And the sexual example, something that was so salacious that it wasn't shown in some countries it was cut is the um when they're in the apartment and the two neighbors sitting in opposite apartments and there's that invisible barrier and at some point either of them is undressing and they're just undressing to the point of taking off their business coat and putting on their house coat or like removing their suspenders um but apparently that was so salacious that was seen as so weirdly sexually suggestive that uh, the body would be on display in that way that that sequence was cut out uh when the film was finally shown in certain countries and then uh you know again like the semiotician that is like the way that the french talk about cinema when they talk about violence in a tati film it's that man bumping his nose into a glass wall and having to get bandaged um per se so i think if those are your highs if those are your like sexual violent crescendos within the universe of this tati film uh then like He very much has a disinterest in sex and violence in the way that we interpret it as a modern society. Mm -hmm. And so I think that because uh, Tati himself has such a direct disinterest in sex and violence as subject matter, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a why he was so probably like did not really connect with Gen X. 'Cause the cinema of Gen X is so dictated by sex and violence and like yeah. that kind of punk rock aesthetic. It's, and,
2: well, it's and it also kind of operates as a response to the seven days. Yeah, very yeah. much so.
3: And um we have Gen Z, who is like notably seems to be having less interest in sex and violence. I think uh I'm not sure the sexual thing, but I know like school shooting after school shooting, like probably a lot less interested in watching like uh an Arnold Schwarzenegger style action movie. All that is to say that I think that, uh, yeah, anyone, Zoomer or younger, like, might actually love what he's digging at.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm in both of your guys' camp, but I'm going to propose something rather radical. I could pitch this movie to somebody as their first Tati film without bringing Tati into the conversation. Okay. So an example that i've had in my own life is my girlfriend and i watch youtube because she likes going through youtube and there is this video of like 20 to 30 minutes of a woman from japan cooking various meals very quietly uh constructing little things around the house showing things of the cat and we're almost kind of seeped in an experience And my pitch to somebody would be, do you want a film version of that from the 60s? Because I would recommend you check this out because it's not really a, you don't have to get worried about a plot. You're experiencing a moment and you're experiencing an atmosphere. Unlike the films we've done with Tati before and what I'm presuming we're gonna deal with after with the final two, not only does this film have no plot, even if I were to find you a plot, I could also toss that plot in the garbage. And I feel like it is possible to recommend this to somebody and have them respond positively without having to know about Hulot and Tati and Tativille and the Prime Minister of France and uh, the the architecture of Paris post-war. They don't need to know any of the things we've been talking about. In a sense, this podcast is just as pointless as the plot in Playtime. (laughs) And yet... I could recommend this to somebody and be like, just watch, just watch this to get lost in a world. Like the way you like to get lost in the latest Zelda game that came out for Nintendo DS. This open environment, you could just exist in here. So Yes, there's this guy in a trench coat walking around, but he's there to provide a little bit of chaos amid the rigidity and you'll start to see it unfold. That's it. Don't have to like, you. You've, you've, you've got a rigid society upended by one clumsy fool. I don't need to tell you about the origins of Hulo. I don't need to tell you the origins of Tati as a mime. I just need to show you what this is. Um, if I was going to recommend this as a Tati film, I would no, I would say put this and Mononcle back to back. So like show Mononcle first and then show Playtime. But that's only under the auspices of a Tati experience, like what we're providing here right now. So like anybody who's been listening to this, Hopefully you've watched the first three before you've gotten to this point because it's going to make the experience much more richer. But I think that this is a pretty easy film to recommend in an age where we have access to the Criterion channel and thankfully better open channels to world cinema to where different types of viewing experiences are more than easily received. Um, Is somebody who's a little bit more predominated toward the blockbuster affair going to like this film? Probably not, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, Because there's an open world environment that exists for them mostly on Disney, and that's totally cool. But over here on the Criterion channel and maybe whatever distribution TCM, I know like HBO. Yeah, exactly. TCM and HBO, they have access to these kind of films where they provide a different type of open world environment.
3: Shout out Canopy as well, the library app.
2: Yes, exactly. Canopy, um, which I have yet to use, but I saw that they started adding that to the library, and I'm like, that's incredible that they have access to this. It's great i I'm I'm proud that they found a way to still exist in a world that might have made them irrelevant. Um, now, let's talk about the reception of this film because it is one of the things we also should talk about we didn't really touch too much on, but it's uh this film was made in 70 millimeter, which um, out of all the things that makes this film expensive, I feel like this is the one that you could have removed and would have saved you a ton of money. <laughs> Not, not not the thing, but one of the key things.
3: When he's describing shooting the entire restaurant sequence in 70 millimeter with one camera, mm-hmm. like the people in the audience, this is a 72 San Francisco International Film Festival. They're like audible gasps on that soundtrack. Yeah. Because people just assume like, obviously you had like a B and C camera rolling. He's mm-hmm. like, no, A cam.
2: Yeah, it's, that's, uh, we can't experience it the way he experienced it because we haven't seen this film projected in that format, but the criterion.
3: I would die to see this film on a, on a big screen, even if it was just a 35 or digital print, (laughs) but God almighty.
2: Yeah. And this is the, this is the interesting thing that I found, which sort of explains our confusion that we had in last episode regarding U.S. release,
3: but oh, the the distribution of this. Yeah. The distribution of this, because
2: so but but to order to get to there let's start with this 70 millimeter element um there is a site by the way in 70 millimeter.com and they did a whole article about the restoration of playtime by jerome Deschamps, uh translated from french by julie uh theodore with paul rayton
3: thank you for turning me on to that by the way my life is richer now knowing this site exists thank
2: you it, it, it's remarkable i was stunned i it, it, the amazing thing that will happen when you google did Playtime release in the US. Um, Playtime, the only Jacques Tati movie shot for 70 millimeter release, uh, according to the website. The original 67 negative material was so worn and damaged by the that by the year 2000, it wasn't possible to make new copies without some restoration being done to it. Moreover, in 1979, because of financial troubles, Jacques Tati had been required to cut some parts of it against his will in order to tighten the runtime of the movie to under two hours. Uh, uh, this measure was imposed by financial partners. Indeed, after Playtime's production, Jacques Jacques Tati's company had gone bankrupt, Spectra uh, Spectra Film, Uh, and all of his movies were confiscated until 1976. At the time, new financial partners allowed him to reverse that confiscation, but in the process, Tati lost most of his director's rights. The bankrupt nature of... Playtime doesn't just affect the results of this movie. It results in the loss of the rights to everything. And his, and his house. And his house.
3: And his sister's inherited fortune. And his
2: sister's inherited fortune. And, frankly, his reputation. Um, now, uh, the in terms of whether or not this film received a U.S. release... Proved to be the most. It's not like it's. I. It's so weird. It's not a closely guarded secret, but it's. It's just kind of like it's so simple that nobody wanted to touch it.
3: I mean, I text you that when I when that bit of trivia hit. Yeah. And I was like Zach, did you know about this? Like.
2: Yeah. No. Yeah.
3: Did the distrib- Did the distribution really pull out? Yeah. And, and put a nail in this coffin, like.
2: They did. They did pull out, but. It's almost seeming like based off of Bellis' book, too, that nobody was going to touch it no matter what. And that sucks because Spectra Films' hopes would have been placed firmly in U.S. hands because he had made a splash in the U.S. with one So if he had made a success with this film in the U.S., it would have justified every decision he made. But you
3: could imagine a world where uh, an international audience is coaxed to give it another look after an American
2: audience eats it up for some a, reason. Like especially that. with the emergence of a new wave uh, directors coming out uh, out of colleges in the U.S. But Bellos has pointed out that around the time that this would have come out in the U.S. in that form or fashion, the, it was 1968. The world was upending at the seams whether through assassination, after assassination, after atrocity and war, the priorities are focusing and shifting and suddenly the innovation of art is only as powerful as the citizens willingness to pay attention to that but instead of (coughs) completely ignoring it they start as through whether it's Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, Martin um, uh, Scorsese, Peter Bogdanovich, all, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, all start telling stories of anger and rage through their own lens because of what they're experiencing there. And they're using techniques that come from innovations outside of this country. Tati is not strictly one of them. But he does end up influencing, oddly enough, people in Britain more often than not. Um, but yeah. <coughs> And is, maybe Charlie Kaufman. And maybe Charlie Kaufman. There's a I lot mean.
3: of Synecote New York in this movie.
2: Yeah, which um, it makes me... I'm glad you brought that up because I did think about Synecote New York or Synecote. I, I don't know how to say it. We don't know. Charlie Kaufman's New York. That, uh, <laughs> that made me go like, I should rewatch this film because... And watched it back to back with, with Sinodachi because it's just like it almost feels like there's layers upon layers upon layers. And Charlie Kaufman just gets a little bit more mentally messy with it. But I like what he does. Um, so Bellos' book writes this out. And I think it's important for the full con- for the full like discussion here is that rights for the UK and Scandinavia were sold. And the film met a more enthusiastic response in those countries. France, not really it had already needed to have a bigger run in France to have any momentum. And there was a long time where it only had an exclusive run at the Empire Theater before any other distribution because he was wanting to create this roadshow experience with a 70 millimeter and this experience, mm-hmm. not just a film, an experience. Um, <clears throat> uh, in England, houses were 80% full, uh, full for playtime and at least in its first Weeks of showing a British producer, Dimitri de Grunwald, who had met met the Tatis on holiday at Lubal, seemed keen to come up with the finance for another Hulot film. The press coverage in New York, in Mexico, Uruguay, Argentina, and Ecuador was more more than satisfactory. But French audiences and above all U.S. distributors were unconvinced. There's one good reason out of every 10 spectators asked, one claimed to have enjoyed the film. Three admitted to not having been made to smile, but the six, rem- the remaining six, as they emerged from the two and a half hour show, looking glum as the grave, had the same refrain: "Tati, c'est fini. It's all over for Tati." Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, consequently, on this one uh, regarding U.S. distribution, as we were getting to, um, but the main uh, playtime. Um, and thus for SpectraVision's increasing indebtedness would have uh, desired US distribution but the main reason was not late payment but the fact that no payments were at all due from the US since no distributor had ever been or would ever be interested in the film this isn't related to the fact that SpectraVision and Tati are now fully just in the red and they have no way of getting out of it um uh, only American money could have saved Spectre Films from default, and it never came. It was not until the late until late 1970 that a copy had even found its way to the U.S., and it was given a sneak preview at an out-of-center New York cinema, the Continental Theater in Queens. Tati was disappointed not to be invited to come and talk to the audience about the qualities and faults of this difficult child, who lacks violence as well as sex appeal, but who expresses a certain gentleness, as he wrote for his in in his curious English, to his contract to the Walter Reed organization. But it would have been to no avail. Playtime never has had a full commercial release in the U.S., even now, as of 1999. And yet, we are still talking about it to this day. Henry, with all of that in mind, with the failure of it, are you are you stunned by the longevity of this film, or does it not surprise you?
4: No, I mean, you. Good art stands the test of time.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: It might not might not have found its audience right away, but I think anything, anything that's anything that you make like this, that's this well produced uh, and this well crafted, I think will eventually stand the test of time, and I think this film
3: proves that.
2: Yeah sterling i think you i think we can all share that sentiment unless you want to add anything to that
3: no you know where i stand i know on, where you stand this. and me. i'm it's kind of the same way that vertigo has moved on up in the rankings you know to overtake films that at the time were considered better than it
2: yeah like citizen kane and-
3: um which is a movie i did get to see on 70 millimeter we've talked about that yeah and like yeah man castro theater if you're listening like i will fly out for a playtime screening yeah um yeah. Or,
2: or we, I mean, we can't do 70 millimeter, but maybe we can s- figure a way to show playtime here.
3: Yeah, I would. uh I'm very interested in, in working to set something up. Uh
2: Yeah, there's, um, there's something coming after we kind of wrap up the playtime discussion that we'll tease a little bit. Because we're going to talk a little bit about this yeah. afterwards. But and
3: we should say again. So he doesn't get to speak about the film when it's shown but then it is shown at the san francisco international film festival Mm -hmm. 72 i think that is um and that's when he's doing the q a with the audience um and he does say in that and there's a hopeful note he acknowledges losing his house yeah losing everything for this movie yep. and he goes on to say it's not that important he says losing the house not very important but getting the respect of younger film audiences uh, and getting, he said, getting the respect of younger film audiences meant more to him than getting the respect of the entire nation of France back.
2: Yeah, um, he was more concerned about fellow nerds than the mass, the mass public.
3: Yeah, so you know, moral <laughs> of story: he he died for your sins, and, and yeah, everyone should go see this movie.
2: Which there is a there is a last question that can be had to that is. We're at an era right now where art versus commerce has never been more touchy a subject because it's now been pushed into camps of Marvel versus Martin Scorsese of all people.
3: Yeah, or things like the Esquire Theater may be becoming condos. The same kind of shitty condo you'd see in here.
2: Yeah, they're literally showing the Empire Strikes Back for one of their midnights, which is now a 10 p.m. show because the structure of the economics of the business has changed i think it was a good innovation yeah i mean it's a good idea but empire strikes back has definitely more than made its money <laughs> uh doesn't necessarily need that same space and yet there's somebody who might that might be the first time watching a star wars movie in a theater you never know um but here's the last question is that if playtime came out today do you think anybody would go to the theater yeah No, probably not. I mean, who goes to the theater at all anymore? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird. No matter when playtime would have been made, it's almost like he would have been set up to fail no matter what, which is kind of sad to end on. Um, But I wanted to bring it up because we have this idea of like, well, if everybody will go to the theater, then then everybody can have space for everything. And it's like, yeah, but... History has shown, as much as we don't want to think about it, that the films we consider classics now that weren't box office successes more than likely wouldn't do good around the time that you're proclaiming it a classic either. They're always going to have that certain appeal level of what people are willing to step out for a night at the movies for. You know, like, it's... There are some subjects where it's like you it's special to have been there for the moment that it was out. Somebody like Terry Jones got to see this in 70 millimeter and took those lessons into Monty Python and everything else he did. And I think about this when I think about something like, uh, like a Scorsese film, like last temptation of Christ mm. where I'm like, man, I would love to see that in the theater and maybe it would work even better today. And the reality is no, it wouldn't, it would not do. It would probably do worse today. <laughs> than it did in 89 or 88 because it doesn't it's these are still films that carry heavy ideas and that always doesn't always translate to a fun night at the movies and i think that unfortunately that is the mindset that predominates most of film history we had this one gap in the 70s where the two meshed very well but we haven't really recaptured that moment since it's that one moment in the '70s where everything clicked, where we wanted to see the challenging stuff, and even the challenging stuff then didn't always succeed either. Hal Ashby had his issues. Um, uh, I I know that Coppola obviously had his issues. Like the conversation wasn't as popular as the go- the Godfather. Um, you know, Scorsese. Not everything he made in the '70s was a hit. New York, New York is a good example of that. Bogdanovich wasn't wasn't a home run king every day. Um, But more often than not, those ideas were succeeding. And now it sounds like they aren't. But I'm going to say I would be optimistic that Playtime would do well. But it would do well the same way that the Irishman did well at the box office. Because it would have another platform to go to. It's the dual release. The special engagements for the people who really want that experience, they have the option. But as long as the option's there...
3: Or as the roadshow that was never realized. Yeah. I You know, I think about Tarantino's roadshow in
2: 70 millimeter for yeah. Hateful Eight. It provides a space that for the people who want it, they can do it because you didn't have to go to all you got. W- what you got in the Hateful Eight roadshow was a like, 30 extra minutes
3: and that cool little book.
2: Yeah, and that booklet, which was a, w- a wonderful program that I have two copies of of with the same uh, fold-out poster or whatever.
3: And getting to see it in 70. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, if you're insane, that means a lot to you.
2: Yeah, it's um, unfortunately when I saw it in 70 millimeter, it was at the Continental Theater in the one of the smaller theaters and not the, on the mm-hmm. giant
5: screen. Yeah.
3: But uh, <laughs> when you're talking about like... It's weird because, in a lot of ways, like this movie feels um, like Meow Wolf to me too. Like sitting in this universe, yeah, has that kind of vibe as well. Oh yeah, I would almost see like seeing this movie as like an immersive theatrical experience. Yeah, uh, would would make as much sense as anything at this point. If you could turn this into some kind of hybrid experiential environment,
5: well, like,
2: Hen- I could see
3: this thriving.
2: Henry had the right idea: noise canceling headphones. you watch it first but also tati said that the idea was that you watch playtime and then you walk out and continue watching playtime yeah yeah, playtime's a state of mind yeah Yeah. exactly and on that note henry thank you very much for sitting down and lending your thoughts on thank you for having me Um, i'm it's always a pleasure to come
4: on this was a very fun episode
2: yeah um do you want to promote anything or do you want to just tell people that you exist Uh,
4: i exist uh if you want to follow me on twitter i'm dark underscore americana uh, I got some screenplays over there that I'm trying to win awards with. Uh, and then, if you want to uh, give me money, there's an alleyway near my house. Uh, so just meet me in the alleyway, and uh, I <laughs> take uh, nothing less than twenty. So uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's what I have to offer.
2: So go on down and donate to Henry's anti-mugging you fund. Yeah, so <laughs> and uh, you're already in the alleyway. He's got a legion.
3: So, <laughs>
2: You turn around and
3: realize there are cardboard cutouts behind you and there's no escape.
2: (laughs) Get him, Jerry. And then it's just a cardboard cutout named Jerry that just falls on you. And
3: they all have... They all have the ability to use your card uh, on their phone, so you can't say you didn't have cash.
2: When they try to break through a glass door, but the handle still stays up by that one doorman. <laughs> yeah. We didn't talk about the doorman gag, but that doorman gag's fucking dope. Where he just keeps trying to hold it in place um, to I make mean, to seem like it, make it seem like the the glass door is still there. If
3: you want to do a series of deleted scenes, oh, <laughs> I have
2: five extra minutes after Henry leaves.
3: Nice, Henry. It was great meeting you. Yeah, we, we it was it was lovely way. being being in headphones with you.
2: Yeah. And um for for us for Tour de Tati, we're not done yet. We've still got a, we've still got two more films to go, and we've still got additional conversations to have. Um, I know that <coughs> we've uh been, we've been down the dark, the dark path today, but there's optimism for the world of Tati um and in a sense, I guess, I've gotten the inkling that our final film discussion or film breakdown is actually going to be one that we'll probably find charming because it harkens back to something he was very, very lauded for when he started. Um, But also um, uh, there were inklings last episode about talking about finding a way to screen Tati's work. And I do think that not only playtime is a, is a huge possibility that's something that could be done at one of our local theaters but um sterling gets to hear this on the air for the first time is an idea of what if our final episode was on stage after showing everybody the shorts
3: yeah i would uh i would shave for that yeah <laughs> that sounds awesome
2: not only do you get to see sterling cook without a mustache but um well i I mean i would shave my cheeks oh you shave the cheeks gotcha just like i would shave mine yeah there you go um so like that's an idea that's going to be pursued um is doing the final episode by covering the short films where it all really started where he learned how to hone the mime ability with the filmmaking ability but also trying to figure out a way to do playtime and i actually think that the uh, for for playtime it would be ideal at the same place that I'd want to do it for the shorts, which would be the bug theater.
3: love the bug theater.
2: Yeah and so I think that that's something that I want to pursue. No promises yet because nothing's been booked or even approached but well, that's gonna wrap it up on the next Tati talk uh we will be going back to Hulo again because sometimes you just gotta make that money. Hey Tati maybe I've got your money. And it's in the form of a movie called Traffic. That's where we're going to be talking about traffic. Um, uh, So stay tuned for that. Uh, Stay tuned for more Tati Talk. And stay tuned for updates on the stuff we just discussed. Um, But until next time, uh, good night. And um, remember, you're all just deep down just a cardboard cutout in the background of Tati's life.
3: The cowlicks of society will not be tamed. Life (laughs) will find a way. Go destroy a restaurant. Do it for your boy
2: do it. Good night. night,